It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, May 4th, 2009. Had to take a little time off last week. Wasn't quite recovering from whatever was ailing me. So what was my solution? Take a day off and get a little bit of rest. Even discernment guys need a Sabbath day off. Or at least a Friday off sometimes. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically about the claims that people make in the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of religion, in the name of whatever, and compare it to the Word of God. Why? Well, I have this pesky little belief called sola scriptura. It's the idea that God has spoken. He's spoken to us in his word, and his word is true. Not because I say it's true, but because Jesus Christ says it's true, and he proved to be God in human flesh by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Now, I defy any of you guys, if you really want to weigh in on uh, on the authority of Scripture and you want an opinion and you want to hold to an opinion and teach an opinion other than the opinion that Jesus Christ has, well, first and foremost, uh, you need to uh, prove that your credentials are better than his. Um, uh, if you would like us to, uh, you know, stop your heart or, you know, painlessly kill you, um, and if three days you rise from the dead, then we know that you're you're just as qualified as Jesus to pe- speak on these matters and to contradict them. Well, that's not exactly a very loving way of putting it. Well, maybe we can find an, an alternative, but you know, maybe we'll just let you run your life out, and, and you can we'll hold off pu- allowing you to publish or say anything to the church negative against God's word until you prove your credentials to be as good as Christ's. I think that's a that's a good way of doing it. You know, you know why? You know, last thing we want is for scholars to be dropping like flies uh, because they feel like they have to prove something that they're not capable of proving. All right, we got a great week lined up today. I, I got to tell you, I appreciate uh, the uh, response on Facebook and on Twitter for those of you who are following me on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, regarding me taking a day off, I, I literally had to do it. One of the things y'all don't know, and I don't really talk about it, is is that um, the, the days here at Pirate Christian Radio are long. And what I mean by that is I'm usually uh, in the studio between 8 and 8.30 every morning, and oftentimes I don't get out of the studio for real. Um, you know, I, I'm able to take breaks, spend time with my family, have dinner with my family, and kind of chop the day up, but uh, my production day doesn't normally end till about uh, ten thirty, eleven o'clock every night. So as a result of it, it's really easy to feel like I'm burning the candle at both ends, and and for things just to backlash on me. And so uh, Friday, I had to take a little bit of time off. I was a little under the weather, middle of the week, and wasn't quite recovering. And I thought, you know, I'm putting in some long days. It's time to uh, reassess and and try some things differently. So. Uh, you know, and in, in for the immediate future, there's no, there's really no ability for me to hire uh, help as far as the production work is concerned. We that's just not in our budget. 
So, you know, we do what it needs to what needs to be done to continue to get the gospel out here at Pirate Christian Radio. And I'm not complaining. Don't want any of these emails. Oh, we feel so bad. None of that. That's not that's not what that's about. Anyway, um, over the weekend, I was able to read Bob DeWay's new book, which we're going to be making available starting tomorrow at uh, Pirate Christian Radio. His book is called The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. And I have to tell you, out of all of the books that I have read that have critiqued uh, the emergent church movement, this is by far the best. Bob DeWay has done the body of Christ a tremendous service uh, by publishing this book. And oddly enough, there wasn't a major publisher that was willing to touch it with a 10-foot pole. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that all of the major Christian publishing houses now have emergent type, uh, emergent, uh, emergent books as part of their standard offering to the church. And uh, Bob DeWay has just hit a grand slam home run with his new book called the emergent church undefining Christianity, which we will be selling here at pirate Christian radio, uh, because we want everybody who is serious about, uh, you know, a critique on the, uh, you know, h- how do you biblically critique these guys? Bob DeWay has done it. Now, up until this point, every book that's been written has pretty much suffered from the same problem. And that is, is that defining the emergent church or trying to figure out what's, what is happening behind the scenes or let's say under the hood of the emergent machine has been very, very difficult to uh, figure out. And so one of the metaphors that I use in conversation and discussing the emergent church is that it's like trying to, uh, to lock your photon torpedoes onto a Klingon warbird that's being, cl- that's already, that's, that's cloaked. That's got a cloaking device on pretty difficult to do. Um, and so, uh, what Bob DeWay's book has done is it literally has, uh, pierced the Klingon Warbirds, uh, cloaking device and given us an absolutely clear target to shoot at. And it's just amazing. It's so good. And so I, I come to the microphone this, uh, today, this week, giddy about this book. And we're going to be having, uh, we're going to be interviewing Bob DeWay here on Fighting for the Faith on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. And so I just, I, I cannot wait to, uh, to, to do these interviews with DeWay and discuss some of these issues and to make this book available because it, it, it's, it's, it's just refreshingly wonderful. And so after reading this book, you'll sit there and you'll go, I get it. I, I got it. It, it, it's in clear focus. I now know what it is that they believe, why they believe it, and why it's wrong, why it's biblically off. So any of you guys out there, in fact, I spent quite a bit of time on the phone this morning. Uh, we're, we're, we are literally discussing the, uh, the possibility of holding a pirate Christian radio conference in the fall of this year uh, here in Indianapolis, in Indiana, on the emergent church. And uh, Bob DeWay would definitely be one of our speakers, and we're, we're in the process of looking at the feasibility and availability of several of the speakers that we want to make available for our first-ever Pirate Christian Radio Conference. And it's, you know, it, it might be something, name something uh, ridiculously silly like 
uh, the emergent church uh, removing the cloaking device off the Klingon warbird, something like that. I mean, that's the, that's how nerdy this the, the name of the conference would be. But the idea is that everybody who would attend that conference, they would leave with a systematic understanding of what's driving the emergent church, why it's wrong on several different levels, and in you know, it would be a, a great compliment to Bob DeWay's book and uh, in just. I'll keep you posted. This is that's just how excited I am about it. So, um, emails I've been getting this week, uh, over the weekend, amazing, fantastic emails. And so I we're gonna we're gonna try to get to some of those today, and we'll continue getting to them throughout the week. But I just want to let you guys know that uh, we've uh, you know the emails that you have been sending me have just been off the charts, amazing in their content, uh, they're amazing in their questions that they're asking, the depth of information, uh, of understanding in the emails, outstanding. So we'll be getting some, some of those today. Um, out of sync. By the way, Ray from L.A. Uh, Ray from L.A., I want to let you know that we did finally take your idea and professionally finish it. And so Ray from L.A. wrote, after hearing our, our, our review, uh, our debrief on uh, Granger Community Church and uh, our field trip to Granger, he was responding to that oh-so-clever and creative little piece that they did on whether your life was out of sync. And he came up with his own version, uh, basically asking the question, do you need a new church? And with that in mind, we've actually created a public service announcement that has been running in the rotation since Friday here at Pirate Christian Radio. And it's called uh, Time for a New Church. And so uh, I would like to play that for you all and give kudos to Ray for the idea because it was fantastic. So without any further ado, here is our professionally polished Public service announcement on Do You Need a New Church? If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I could know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife. I love my kids. And I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. Well, there you have it. That was our <laughs> the official premiere, even though we kind of let the cat out of the bag after we finished that. Uh, from uh, That's Ray from L.A.'s idea. Uh, it, do you need a new church? 
Um, I'm sure that I'm going to get some hate mail on that one. Sorry if that steps on some toes, but we believe that it is at times necessary. In fact, um, it, it is necessary to step on people's toes and and to show them the things that they're doing wrong so that we can call people to repentance and trust in Christ, the real gospel, for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, this is interesting. I just wanted to kind of let you in on one of the major philosophies that drives Pirate Christian Radio, and specifically this program, and that is this understanding that apologetics... Now, people are going, apologetics? I've heard this term before. Doesn't it mean like when Christians apologize for being mean during the Inquisition... No, (laughs) that's not what apologetics means. Uh, Apologetics basically comes from the Greek word apologia, basically means to make a defense. Uh, you, you, You give an apologetical defense of the Christian faith. Apologetics, ultimately, if you were to, is it law or is it gospel? It clearly comes down on the side of the law. Yes, apologetics is not the gospel. Apologetics does the cleanup work or the prep work for preaching the gospel, much the same way uh, condemning people for their sins and showing them that they're not they're they're not righteous but unrighteous before God as a result of a careful examination of the law uh, does its convicting work, and that is it shows people that they're sinners in need of a Savior. Apologetics, in much the similar way, what it does is it removes obstacles, demolishes bad arguments, and brings uh, bad thoughts into subjection to Christ, basically taking away your bad ideas so that ultimately you can preach the gospel. And in the case of somebody who's preaching false doctrine, it's to call them to repentance, a change of mind, and... Uh, uh, to repent of their bad doctrine, to repent of their false, idolatrous notions about God, and to be called by the clear preaching of the gospel to receive, through Christ, through faith, the forgiveness of sins. So keep that in mind. One of the reasons why we focus on the gospel so much is because uh, it, it has to counter the apologetical work that we're doing here on the program or that I do here on the program because apologetics is ultimately law. It is not the gospel. So that, I just wanted to kind of remind you of that. Now, we've got listener email coming up here. i uh, got a headline from a news story from uh, U.S. News & World Report. Southern Baptist Convention's uh, Richard Land praises Obama's family values. We've got a Associated Press story coming up on hate crimes uh, bill divides evangelicals. Um, I'm going to do that one tomorrow. Already starting to work on tomorrow's program, and then we're going to do a little bit of work on Rob Bell. We've uh, I got a uh, 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 Michigan Live has a headline that reads: Evangelicals, including Rob Bell, call for elimination of nuclear weapons in Two Futures Project. Um, and uh, we'll be talking about that idea. A uh, piece of satire will counter that from something I wrote at uh, a little eleven. And then we're going to look at Rob Bell, who recently interviewed. In fact, this was this came out last week, called "The Giant Story from Christianity Today." And uh, Rob Bell has some very interesting things to say about Christianity and the gospel. And this will actually do a little bit of prep work for us in preparation for our discussion with. Uh, Pastor Bob DeWay later this week on the Emergent Church, because Rob Bell definitely fits into the category of somebody who's in the Emergent Movement. And then to round out the program today, we're going to do a sermon review. I've been receiving a lot of emails from people requesting that I review an Erwin McManus 
sermon. And so Erwin McManus is uh, bills himself as some kind of a cultural architect in Christianity. He is one of the most sought-after conference speaker at all of these uh, conferences that's, that are called like Evolve, Shift, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, those those conferences. Uh, Erwin McManus is one of uh, one of the major uh, speakers for them, and so we're going to review one of his sermons. Uh, he's the pastor of a church in uh, Southern California called Mosaic, and uh, the name of the sermon is called Broken Relationships. So we've got a full plate today, and already pretty much a half half of our plate is written for tomorrow, too. Just want to let you know we've got lots to go over this week. Got an email from Sean. Uh, from Sean, I don't know where he's from, but uh, I'm not going to say his last name because it doesn't look like that kind of email. He says, Chris, is God enough? Now, this is a great question. Is God enough? Uh, this was a question that raced through my mind yesterday. After listening to a sermon which had no gospel, only law, I started to ponder this question. The sermon could be summarized by stating that if we have faith in God, he will give us hope and everything will be okay. And the biggest problem in the church today is, is getting people to come to church. Uh, later on that day, I was talking with our deacon slash elder. Our church does not make the distinction between them. And he told me about a husband who thought about committing suicide. He told me all that that happened was he lost his hope. So if he had more relationship within the church, he was reminded that God would make everything okay and that he should be fine. I then asked if he was seeing a certified counselor, and he told me that God was enough for him and that he needed to be reminded that God offers him hope. Now, no, Sean, I want to make a, a point here. Um, we got to be real careful. Somebody who is suicidal needs and should seek good professional counseling and help. Sometimes somebody who is brought to the brink of suicide, it has to do with the fact that they have a valid chemical imbalance in their brain. Just like you can get a cold or a flu or a virus that makes it so that your sinuses work over, go on to overdrive and you're constantly blowing your nose. There are literal diseases that can attack your brain. As a result of it, um, somebody who is having suicidal thoughts could potentially be somebody who needs to seek... Well, actually, they need to seek professional counseling because they could potentially have a debilitating disease. This does not in any way negate the fact that God is enough... For instance, if I if you know I discover that there's some kind of a lump in the side of my chest, I don't say, "Well, God's enough," and then not go to the doctor because it could be that that lump in my chest could be cancer, and so you don't say, "Well, God's enough." God's enough. That's the and it, somehow it's not enough. I don't think God's enough if I don't seek help. We've got to be real careful. As Christians, uh, remember 
that God works through people who work in their vocations. That's why, you know, a good way to understand, you know, how you are living out the love and serve your neighbor aspect of Christianity is in the very real roles that God has put it, put you in. Are you a father? Are you a mother? Are you a student? Are you a teacher? Are you a doctor? The way you serve and love your neighbor is through your vocation. That being the case, um, you, you think about it, um, you, you know, you, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, have you ever stopped to think just how complicated getting your daily bread is all about? Let me just walk you through just some examples of this concept. Daily bread. Well, bread is made from wheat. Wheat grows on farms, okay? Which means that in order for you to get your daily bread, you need a farmer who needs to purchase seed. And where does he buy the seed from? Well, he buys the seed from a seed store, uh, living here in Indiana, I'm surprised when I listen to the radio, we hear commercials for seed stores and, and seed places. So, you know, and they got all kinds of high yield seeds on this and that and, and, and the other thing. So you need a seed store. You need a seed store owner. You need uh, you need the person who, who made the cars and the trucks and the tractors for the farmer and the seed store owner and uh, the people who ultimately deliver the, the, the bread. So you've got you got the farmer, you got the seed store owner, you've got um, the people who harvest, you got the people who made the machinery, you have the people who um, who paid the money on the last time, you know, in their vocations to make it possible for them to purchase the machinery so that they can uh, buy the seed, plant the seed, harvest the seed, uh, and then and then take the seed after it's harvested, the wheat, to a place where it's milled into flour. And then baked into bread. I mean, all of these, I mean, the, the chain is endless if you ultimately think about it. And you find out that in just the simple prayer, break, give us this day our daily bread, that practically the entire world in their vocation is involved in just that simple prayer. And so if you're not health, if the farmer's not healthy and he doesn't go to see a doctor and he dies and you don't get your bread. So God, God works through other people. So when somebody is suffering from a mental illness or suffering from a physical illness, there, it, it is not a sign of lack of faith. It is not a sign of, of, of God not being enough or anything like that when somebody seeks professional help. Uh, to uh, you know, when they're in, when they're experiencing problems like that, so I wanted to point that out. Anyway, he's told me that uh, all he had lost his hope. And so then I asked if he was seeing a certified counselor. He told me that God was enough for him. Yikes! Again, this question came back: Is God enough? Will God give me hope for the future? Uh, not eternity, uh, but tomorrow. Will God give me hope for the future, not just eternity, but for tomorrow? Will my marriage fall apart or will I lose my job? Is God enough to make my life easy when problems arise or is is just for the forgiveness of sins? But then again, what else is there but the forgiveness of sins? Sean, you know, you ask a really perplexing and good question, okay? And I, I stopped and paused along the way 
there with regard to seeking professional help when there's a professional problem, especially something as serious as somebody who's having suicidal thoughts. Okay, we need to make sure that we carefully, lovingly help somebody seek professional help of that nature when they're experiencing something serious and life-threatening, such as suicide or or an illness that could be fatal. Um, but let me point something else out, else out to you, and that is is that God is enough for Christians, even when their marriages fall apart, they lose their jobs. And circumstances turn. Now, I'm going to come back to uh, Lynn Winter's sermon of last week that we reviewed. Now, I didn't put up an emergency gospel sermon after that sermon. The reason why I didn't is because Lynn did a fine job of exegeting and actually preaching on a text. The thing that was missing from Lynn's sermon, though, was the gospel. Okay, But he made a fantastic point about the fact of Joseph, think about young Joseph. Joseph, at, you know, as a teenager, is sold into slavery by his brothers and spends 13 years, um, not just as a servant in Potiphar's house, because he was only in Potiphar's house for a limited amount of time, because Potiphar's wife had the hots for him and tried to bet him, and uh, that didn't go so well for her. It turns out that uh, uh, Joseph, despite his circumstances, despite the fact that he didn't even own his own life, uh, basically refused the amorous advances of Potiphar's wife. But Potiphar's wife lied about the situation, and what ended up happening was is that Joseph was sent to prison. Not very just, is it? And um, as far as from his experience, as far as what he experienced... This guy's situation went from worse to even worse. Not not only was he a slave, now he was a slave in an Egyptian prison. And um, just, we all know that prisons in the United States are pretty much, you know, country clubs compared to, like, you know, a prison that you would see in Mexico or whatever. Well, um, Mexican prisons... Are country clubs compared to ancient Egyptian prisons. And yet that's where Joseph spent years of his life. He was he didn't even have the ability to get married. He lost his job and was demoted down to prisoner. And yet God was with him in those circumstances. Christianity, our God, is there for us even in the worst of circumstances. And um, if you're not so sure of that, go to Google and type in the book, the name Fox's Book of Martyrs. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Okay. Now, the reason I say Google that is because this is a this is an old book chronicling the persecutions that Christians experienced and went through, uh, you know, through the, through the millennia, through the centuries. And, you know, let me read to you just some highlights here. Polycarp, who was the, an apostle of, the, of uh, John the Apostle, we, we read from Fox's Book of Martyrs that uh, um, 
Polycarp, the venerable bishop of Smyrna, hearing that persons were seeking for him, escaped, but was discovered by a child. After feasting, the guards who apprehended him uh, desired an hour in prayer, which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented uh, that they had been instrumental in taking him. He was, however, carried before the proconsul and condemned and burnt in the marketplace. The proconsul then urged Polycarp, saying, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? So he was burned alive. Um, Metrodorus, a minister who preached boldly, and Pionius, who made some excellent apologies for the Christian faith, they were likewise burnt at the stake. Carpus and pa- uh, Papalus, two worthy Christians, and Agatonica, a pious woman, suffered martyrdom at uh, uh, Pergampolis in Asia. Philistius, an illustrious Roman lady, lady of considerable family, and the most, uh, the most shining virtues was a devout Christian. She had seven sons whom she had educated with the most exemplary piety. And uh, Januarius, the eldest, was scourged and pressed to death with weights. Felix and Philip, uh, the two next, had their brains smashed out with clubs. Sylvanus IV was murdered by being thrown from a precipice. And the three younger sons, Alexander, uh, Vitalis, and uh, Martial, were beheaded. And then the mother eventually was beheaded with the same sword as the three latter. Justin, the celebrated philosopher, fell a martyr in his persecution. He was a native of Neapolis in Samaria and was born in AD 103. Justin was a great lover of truth and a universal scholar. He investigated the Stoic uh, peripatetic philosophies and attempted uh, the, the fa- I can't even pronounce that. The Pythagorean, that would be the Pythagorean theorem, but uh, behavior of of or behavior of or its professors disgusting him, he applied himself to uh, to the Platonic philosophy, which he then took with great delight. Anyways, in about the year 133, when he was 30 years of age, he became a convert to Christianity and then for the first time perceived the real nature of truth. He wrote an elegant epistle to the Gentiles and employed his talents in convincing the Jews of the birth of the Christian rites, spending a great deal of time traveling until he took his abode in Rome and his fixed habitation upon uh, the the Viminial Mount. He kept a school, uh, uh, public school, taught many who afterward became great men, wrote a treatise uh, to confuse heresies of all kinds as the pagans began to treat Christians with great severity. Justin wrote, uh, wrote his first apology in their favor. This piece displays great learning and genius, and occasionally the emperor published it anyway. Soon afterward, he entered into frequent contests with Crescens, uh, 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 a, a person of a vicious life and conversation, but celebrated cynic philosopher, and his arguments appeared so powerful yet disgusting to the cynic that he resolved on and in the sequel accomplished uh, accomplished his destruction. The second apology of Justin upon uh, uh, certain severities gave uh, Kreskin's, uh the cynic, an opportunity of prejudicing the emperor against the writer of it, which Justin and six of his companions were apprehended, being commanded to sacrifice to the pagan idols. They refused and were condemned to be scourged and then beheaded, which sentence was executed with all imaginable severity. Uh, several were beheaded for refusing to sacrifice to the image of Jupiter, in particular, Concordus, a deacon of the city of Spol- uh, Spolito, 
Some of the re- restless northern nations having risen in arms against Rome, the emperor marched into uh, to encounter them. He was, however, drawn into an... A- anyway, you get the idea. Read Fox's Burke of Martyrs. And the answer to the question, is God enough? The answer is yes, absolutely, God is enough. God is enough even when the the role, the vocation that you get to play in life is no longer the vocation of father or husband or worker or employee, uh, or, but the vocation that you have to serve in now is one of prisoner, the vocation of patient, dying patient, uh, or the vocation of martyr. God is enough to get you through even that. And the fact that you are going through those circumstances is no indicator, none whatsoever, of God's lack of love for you. Nothing could be further from the truth. God doesn't love you less if you are a terminally ill patient or somebody facing the lions for confessing him. Keep that in mind. So is God enough? Absolutely. He's the God who pulls us through. He's the one who gets us through this stuff. Because on our own, you know, there's no hope. But we read in Romans chapter 8. In fact, let me pull this up. Romans chapter 8. I want to make sure I get this in context here. Paul writing, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we Christians, ultimately, our hope is in future glory. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the, for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has or for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Understand, Christians, here, now, we are pilgrims and we are ambassadors. We're pilgrims in the sense that we are passing through this world now. We are passing through as pilgrims on a journey to another kingdom, and we are ambassadors of that kingdom for which we are heading towards. And there will come a day when you, pilgrim Christian, will be called back. You, ambassador Christian, you will be called back to your native country. And our hope is in the present is in the is in the future present and future glory of our great God and King Jesus Christ something that is now and not yet and will fully be revealed upon his return that means that God is enough even when 
everything turns against us. Because even when everything goes badly and the doctor comes back and says the prognosis is death, we are still not like men who have no hope. In fact, our hope grows even greater knowing that the day draws nigh and the night will soon come to an end. All right, we're up on our first break. Actually, we're a little over, but um, I want to remind you uh, that if you'd like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or if you'd like to uh, follow me, uh, be my friend on Facebook. I'm a friendly guy. You can be my friend on Facebook or you can follow me on Twitter. And my name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. And we have kind of a new old uh, Marty Python's uh, Flying Circus Church during this break. Listen in. I think you'll like it. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <clears throat> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Uh, well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? 
Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theocapitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now. That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today.
All right, we're back. Went a little long on that first segment, which means this one will be shorter. Just want to say that so you don't feel like we're throwing in a whole bunch of commercials when we're not. But we got to pay our bills here at Fighting for the Faith. Which reminds me, want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Yeah, what does that mean? Well, it means that uh, your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And uh, and you should consider strongly, if you haven't already, uh, supporting us. And uh, for those of you who have been financially supporting us and have been uh, sending in your gifts, making it possible for us to bring you Fighting for the Faith, want to thank you very much. Uh, but let me say this. If you would like to join those who have been support- supporting Fighting for the Faith, you can do so by going to fightingforthefaith.com. Clicking on the donate button, we have a few of them there on the homepage. Or you can uh, do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, because we went a little bit time uh, long here, we got switching to the news here. Um, from the U.S. News and World Report, headline reads A Southern Baptist Convention's Richard Land. Praises Obama family values. Wow. Okay, let me read. I spoke today with, this is from Dan Gilgoff, uh, who writes for the God and Country section in U.S. World and News Report. Uh, Dan Gilgoff reports, he says he spoke with Richard Land, public policy chief for the Southern Baptist Convention for the nation's largest evangelical denomination, and was struck by his praise of President Obama for living out family values <sighs> okay we're gonna have to comment on this in a second uh, quote not enough religious conservatives are saying this it's terribly impo- important that obama gives every indication of being a moral man uh, who is demonstrably fond of his wife and children i think that's important in a president but uh, be it a democrat or a republican that's why i said i couldn't vote for giuliani or for gingrich I think Obama's making a real difference in this country in his example as a model father and husband. Okay, um, I want to point something out here, and that is, is that I would call this compartmentalizing. Okay, and it, and in fact, I have to do this. I apologize. This is an adventure, an adventure in missing the point. Right. Um, yes, it's true that President Obama appears to be a fine father. Uh, However, that would not be the sole criteria for us to be able to praise Obama on the issue of family values. Um, Family values would include such important things as um let's say abortion stem cell research and policies that pertain to um life why well because it seems like um there's well it's more than seems like uh the political left in the united states seems hell-bent on um murdering babies and uh and protecting a woman's right to murder a child and so um, I just call it just a problem on my part if you want a foible within my conservative thinking. After all, I am an overweight white guy and, you know, but 
if somebody is in favor of having a mother murder their unborn child, that, in my book, kind of puts them outside of somebody who I would be praising in the whole family values thing. Let, let me give you an, an example we can all kind of understand. Um, um, first, you know, maybe if somebody were to come out and say, you know, I think that we conservative Christians have got to stop speaking so poorly of, of Adolf Hitler. You know, I mean, after all, I understand that, you know, he murdered six million Jews, you know, but he really modeled what it, what it looks like to be a great painter. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Adolf Hitler was a fantastic and outrageously gifted landscape artist. And so, you know, that should count for something. I mean, he modeled for us excellence in the category of um, painting. You see what I'm saying here? Um, So, yeah, just because Obama treats his daughters well doesn't mean that he's getting an A-plus in my book when it comes to family. Family values because murdering unborn children kind of puts you outside of that camp. You know, we could also say, you know, that uh, Hitler was just fantastic. You know, he was really, really kind and loving to his mistress, Eva von Braun. I mean, his, you know, his just love and cuddling up to her and was just a model for us of what it's like for somebody who's really smitten with another human being and, and how, how to treat them properly. I mean, think of it this way. I mean, Eva von Braun, she never ended up in the gas chambers. I mean, he sent her flowers and loved her and hugged her and kissed her. And they were just, they were, I mean, they were such a model couple of, you see what I'm saying? I hope I'm making my point. Anyway, next headline Reads, hate crimes bill divides evangelicals. Washington from the Associated Baptist Press. Sorry, not Associated Press. This is the Associated Baptist Press. Hate crimes legislation passed April 19th in the U.S. House of Representatives drew mixed reviews in the religious community. The Local Law Enforcement Hate Crimes Prevention Act, H.R. 193, also known as the Thought Crimes Prevention Act, uh, which passed the democratically controlled House by a vote of 249 to 175 would provide federal assistance to prosecute hate crimes. Remember, hate is something that occurs in your mind. Anyway, um, it would also add sexual orientation, gender identity to current classes protected against hate crimes, including race, religion, and national origin. Many religious conservatives oppose the measure, saying it would be used to stifle free speech. I wonder why they would say something like that. Oh, I know, because when the same type of legislation passed in Canada, Christian pastors were being fined losing their nonprofit status and were going to jail. I just something I've noticed. Anyway, Barrett Duke, vice president for public policy and research for the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, called it an irresponsible piece of legislation that puts Christians and many other religious groups in the government's crosshairs. Do you think that's by accident there, uh, Barrett? Anyway, while we should never condone acts of violence against anyone, yeah, how many um, 
Christians out there, how many pastors uh, are you aware of, Christian pastors, who from their pulpits are advocating, promoting, and preaching that Christians should go out and lynch homosexuals? I don't know of any. I don't know of any. And, and I mean, the worst example that we can come up with as like an intolerable group would be Westboro Baptists in their protests you know, with the signs out there that says God hates fags. Can't stand those guys. They don't have, there's no gospel there at all. It's all law. Um, but I, I, I mean, last time I checked, now I don't really listen in on everything those guys do there at Westboro Baptist. I don't recall them calling for their people in their congregation to lynch and act out violently against homosexuals. Can't think of anybody. I mean, not even the Westboro Baptist people. Anyway, um, so he says, while we should never condone acts of violence against anyone for whatever reason, including whether or not that person is a homosexual, this bill proposes to prosecute someone based on their belief about homosexuality and therefore makes religious belief a germane issue in this debate, Duke said uh, to the Baptist uh, press. Anyone who holds a religiously based belief about homosexuality is b- immediately suspect of engaging in hate crime if a homosexual is involved, even if the person was unaware that the victim was a homosexual. Andrea Lafferty, executive director director of the Traditional Values Coalition, called it anti-Christian legislation that would allow pastors' sermons against homosexuality to be prosecuted as hate speech. The American Family Association said that the bill doesn't uh, doesn't define sexual orientation. It could, uh, it could be interpreted to protect 30 practices, including incest and pedophilia. Lovely. Progressive evangelicals, though. Progressive. By the way, if you ever hear the word progressive, that's code talk. Code talk. Every, work with me here. Whenever you hear the word progressive, I want you to change it in your mind to a different word. The word is liberal. Okay? So when you hear the word progressive, you immediately say liberal. Progressive liberal. Progressive liberal. See, that? that's how that works. So progressive, whenever you hear that word, that term, it's immediately liberal. It's not, a pro- no, it's not progressive. They're liberals. Uh, liberal evangelicals, including Jim Wallace of Sojourners, megachurch pastor Joel Hunter, and Derek Harkins, pastor of 19th Street Baptist Church in Washington, meanwhile, called the measure both moral and necessary. Uh, David Gushy, distinguished university professor at Mercer University and a columnist for the Associated Baptist Press, said he supports the bill because its aim is to protect the dignity and basic human rights of all Americans, especially those Americans whose perceived differentness makes them vulnerable to physical attacks motivated by bias, hatred, and fear. Gashi said he believes the bill poses no threat whatsoever to any free speech right for religious communities or their leaders, and its passage would make for a safer and more secure environment in which we and all of our fellow Americans can live our lives. For me, the case for this bill is settled uh, with these words from Jesus, Gushy said, and as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. <sighs> yeah, anyway, um, yeah, if the bill passes the Senate, President Obama is expected to sign it. And um, 
want to make something really clear here. Um, when this uh, piece of legislation is passed, it will not change anything that I say here on this radio station, nor will it change any of the uh, editorial uh, rules that uh, we abide by here at Pirate Christian Radio. In fact, um, the day that it passes, I will be sure to um, be coming to the microphone with an apologetic based upon the scriptures, claiming my love for homosexuals, homosexuals by telling them the truth, that their behavior is sinful and that Jesus Christ died for their, those sins and we will lovingly call homosexuals, just like any other sinful heterosexual, to repentance and belief in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And um, so if if the government is to interpret that law as meaning I can't say that, we're going to find out because I will defy that law, defy any interpretation of that law here from this microphone and uh, willing even to go to jail to speak the truth. Just want to point that out. All right. Uh, we are up on our second break. Again, I apologize. We went long in the first segment. When we come back, we're going to be looking at Rob Bell. Um, you've got a story here from Michigan Live. Evangelicals, including Rob Bell, call for the elimination of nuclear weapons. Uh, responded to that over at uh, a little11.com. And then we're going to be reading uh, Rob Bell's interview with Christianity Today. And then launching into a sermon review from Erwin McManus. Uh, Mosaic Church and uh, some kind of social architect kind of guy, at least that's how he likens himself within Christianity. See how he does at uh, Law and Gospel and whether or not he handles God's Word properly uh, in his sermons. So we've got lots still coming up here at uh, Fighting for the Faith, so you definitely, definitely uh, don't want to miss it. Um, If you would like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, or if you would like to receive our secret subversive microblogging tweets, you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cannon photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. My job, dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment, which could have a profoundly negative impact on your thoughts and feelings regarding your church, especially if your pastor isn't giving you the goods. Which reminds me, um, got an email, and I have to read this one here. Uh, this gentleman writes, his name is uh, Tom, and he writes, he says, I'm a young 24 uh, new believer, third new birth birthday was in March, uh, and find myself to be very dogmatic in what I perceive to be the, uh, big major subjects, Trinity, substitutionary atonement, man's depravity, and the inspiration of Scripture. No, that's what you, that you're not, well... If you consider dogmatic to be a negative thing, what, you're, you, what you should be dogmatic. These are non-negotiable doctrines that you are standing firm on, and I applaud you for that. He says, I just started going to church five months ago. My new, uh, my new wife and I decided uh, that where we were going did not have the same vision we were seeking, even though the proclamation of the gospel was a major aspect of the worship service. We found uh, what we believe to be a good fit, a relatively new church, younger and older Christians, a missional belief. And, of course, the Bible was opened every week. I also interviewed the pastor to see if, uh, if on the majors we were in the, on the same page. Uh, the pastor's a great guy. He's an awesome husband and a father. He's intelligent, holds a great ecclesiology. He is usually clear in his proclamation, very organized, and tries to be personable. And I say that because it does not seem that it's a natural aspect of his per- uh, that, that it does not seem to be a natural aspect of his personality. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I respect my pastor. Now, I want to point something out here. Uh, before we go any farther, um, the people that we review here on Fighting for the Faith, we review their sermons and they come up short uh, in the truth category or in the proper handling of scripture category or fall up, fall short in the category of uh, proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins, that kind of stuff. Uh, if you were to sit down and have a coffee with them, you'd find they were nice guys. Uh, you will discover that they don't have horns growing out of their heads and 
out of their head and they don't have a tail that they're trying to hide and and secretly they're you know these horrible terrible no good people no they're just as sinful as the rest of us and they're generally upstanding blokes okay i'd be the first person to tell you i've said it before and i'll say it again you know i've met rick warren and he is just the nicest most generous guy However, that being said, he also is probably one of the most habitual uh, scripture twisters I've ever seen or met in my life. And uh, he undermines Orthodox Christianity through his behavior anyway. But he's a nice guy. So here's the issue that Tom writes about. It says, we had a study this week. The study is more of an open form than a direct approach to any given subject. In our discussion, we hit on salvation in Christ. During the discussion, my pastor expressed an opinion that all salvation is from God and by the blood of Jesus. He continued to say that he preaches salvation in Christ because he believes that the Bible reveals that it is the only means to God. And that's when the but came in. Now, i got to be careful. When you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But <laughs> when that's a that's a big but, and uh, those buts have the uh, ability to erase the things that precede them. So you got to be careful when somebody makes a clear proclamation of biblical truth regarding salvation in Jesus Christ and follows it with a but. Yikes. Anyway, he says, but that's when the but came in. My pastor proceeded to express that if a man were living a life fulfilling of the law for the purpose of glorifying the God who created him, that God would appropriate the blood of his son onto this man. My pastor continued that he can give no example because he does not know if any example person or group exists or ever has existed that would fulfill this. But it turns out also that one of the people attending this discussion was a bleeding heart liberal. Now, I don't need to read any further. I want to point something out to you, okay? Your pastor is being trying to be magnanimous. He's wrong, but in his, you know, he, what he said is wrong. And he needs you need to give him a little bit of help as far as giving him some backbone on this, okay? He's feeling the pressure that's coming from this exclusive truth claim. And as a result of it, he's beginning to compromise on the doctrine okay so rather than throwing him on under the bus i mean you've said enough about your pastor that makes me say okay this seems like he's a overall he's a decent guy but he needs to <laughs> notice i said but he needs somebody to come alongside of him and encourage him to um to be brave and uncompromising regarding the truth and and he basically what's happened here is that he's confusing law and gospel. Okay, remember, gospel is we're saved by grace through faith by what Christ did, not anything that we've done. Salvation is something given to us as a gift by God. It is all God's work, and it is only, only, only by grace through faith. Period. Okay. Now, the scenario that your pastor set up is not a tenable position. He said that he preaches salvation in Christ because he believes the Bible reveals it's the only way. And then the but came in. He says, my pastor proceeded to express that if a man were to live a life fulfilling of the law, 
Um, take them to Romans chapter one and Romans chapter three. In fact, read one through three together and you find all have sinned, all have fall short. No one seeks God. All have become worthless. There's no one who seeks God. No, not one. The reason he can't give an example because there is no example of a law abiding pagan. And in fact, um, this is important. Okay. Keep this in mind. Okay. Pagans have a revelation of God. It's called general revelation, or it's the revelation that we get through nature. That revelation of God tells us that God exists. Okay. How do we know God exists? By what has been made. Simple philosophical argument along these lines is uh, the example that uh, of design and designer. Okay, just like a watch, you know, you can look at the intricacies of a watch and say that demands that a designer made it. In a much a similar way, you can look at creation and go, there has got to be a god out there. Okay, a supreme example of somebody who believed in a god as a result of his examination of the universe and how it works would be somebody like Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, in studying the the movement of natural bodies, learning you know e equals m c squared and all this kind of stuff, came to the conclusion that God does not play dice with the universe. Okay, that there is no chance, and that all of this is is highly designed. That was Einstein's uh, position. Okay, the thing is, is that natural revelation can't bring you to the truth of God. Let me give you an example. Look at the Greek pantheon of gods. The Greeks, some of the greatest philosophical thinkers ever to have graced the planet Earth, when it came to their concepts of God, they were miserably off, okay? And their gods turned out to be nothing more than uh, immortal versions of sinful human beings with the same capricious problems and immoral problems that we all suffer from, okay? And this was coming from some of the greatest minds that have ever graced our planet. They were miserably wrong when it came to God. Well, where did they get their information about God? Well, they knew God existed just by looking at the cosmos. They, 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 they correctly surmised from nature, general revelation, that a god or gods existed. And then their imaginations went wild. Okay. The Romans, they weren't even creative when it came to deities. They just ripped off the Greek deities and renamed them. And uh, in Whammo Blamo, you have the same deities just under a different name. They rebranded them. That would be the correct American term for it now. So anyway, again, you can't turn to any religion, any anybody out there. I mean, look at these these tribal people out and these tribal people out in the middle of the boondocks, out in the middle of these rainforests. That they, apparently, there's still some of these, you know. These isolated tribes of uh, people that, that, you know, they're being discovered down in the Brazilian rainforests. Uh, are they worshiping the one true God? Do they know anything about him? Well, they have an idea that God exists, but all of their stuff is way, way, way off the mark. Okay? So such person doesn't exist. Why? Because the gospel isn't revealed in nature. The law is, the existence of God is, but the gospel isn't. And 
the Nate, then David Hume correctly pointed out that the, you know the world and its design doesn't tell us whether or not it was one god or a million the gods that made it that made the universe. There's no way to know. Okay, sure, I'll grant you your premise that there was a designer, but uh, yeah, how do you know there wasn't fifty of them, or a hundred, or a thousand? How do you how do we know that your god was the one who designed it, right? Hume had a point. So your pastor here is confusing law and gospel, and I suspect, okay, that he may be feeling the pressure of, you know, of having that exclusive claim and also considering the fact that there was a bleeding heart liberal in the group, and he probably knows that person in the group was a bleeding heart liberal. You need to go and meet with your pastor and say, Pastor, you are called by Christ to boldly and prophetically proclaim the truth. It is wrong and sinful of you to compromise the truth, regardless of who's in the room. I love you, and I'm praying for you, and I'm asking you to repent. And, um, in fact, if you want me to hold you accountable, I will be happy to do it. Because God has gifted me with dogmatism. <laughs> Blessed you with dogmatism. So I would go at it that way. Don't, don't, don't give up on your pastor yet. And uh, talk to him, work with him, see if you can uh, encourage him to be brave. And um, and then, you know, and I, I'm not convinced you're, you should walk on this one yet, but you need to make it clear. He's confusing law and gospel. We're all saved by grace. And when we look at what's going on in the world around us and those people who've had ample opportunities through their observation of the world, none of, it have, none of them have gotten it right regarding who God is and what he's done. Why? Because we need that special revelation, that special revelation from God that we find in the scriptures, and more importantly, that special revelation we get through the incarnation of God himself in Jesus Christ. The stars don't, won't point us to that. Only the scriptures do. So, all right, moving on here to some Rob Bell news. You know what? Hang on a second here. I, I, I'm going to have to do this. I'm, I'm going to have to find my... Uh, uh, going to YouTube right now to find some music to go with this segment. And we, this is what we played last week. Um, give peace a chance. Here we go. Um, we'll have to use this for Rob Bell in the emergence um, because I think it fits. Here we go. The Beatles. Give the peace people. a chance. From MichiganLive.com or MLive.com for the uh, initiated. Headline reads, Evangelicals, including Rob Bell, call for the elimination of nuclear weapons in Two Futures Project. Yeah, all we're saying is give peace a chance. Now, this is a major theme within uh, the emergent church, and it's not because of what you would think. The, uh, the emergent guys are not exactly your drug... Uh, pot-smoking hippie types, um, and the, the problem is is that they have a really bad eschatology, and we'll talk about that a little bit here. But uh, let me read from the uh, from the Michigan Live. It says, uh, the, dis- uh, the destruction one nuclear bomb can wreak is more than horrifying. The Reverend Rob Bell says, it's an insult to God. Quote, this is a direct quote from Rob Bell, 
Nuclear weapons are a direct affront to God's dream of shalom for the world. <laughs> I can't read it with a straight face. Anyway, life is beautiful and nuclear weapons are ugly. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, all right. <clears throat> the quote is, nuclear weapons are a direct affront to God's dream of shalom for the world. Bell said Tuesday, life is beautiful and nuclear weapons are ugly. The pastor of, actually, actually he would be the uh, the leader of the Mars Hill Bible cohort. Um, that's what I think. We, we should not be calling Mars Hill Church there in Grand Rapids. Uh, a church. It really is a emergent cohort. The pastor of Mars Hill Cohort in Granville has joined other evangelicals to issue an impassioned call for the elimination of nuclear weapons. Bell spoke at a teleconference Tuesday to launch the Two Futures Project, a coalition of prominent Christians asserting uh, multilateral disarmament is a biblical imperative. And you're sitting there going, what? How... <laughs> How is multilateral disarmament a biblical imperative? Okay, now I'm glad that you asked this question. Okay, it's not because it's taught in the Bible. It has to do with emergent eschatology. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but having just read uh, Bob DeWay's book, The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, which I've told you, has taken the the cloaking device, pierced the cloaking device of the Klingon warbird known as the Emergent Church, and has given us a clear target. Now, help, let me help you out here. Emergent eschatology does not believe that the world is going to get progressively worse in sin and pretty much come to the brink of suicide right before Jesus Christ returns, okay? Now, amillennial and premillennial dispensationalism believes and teaches that the scriptures teach that the world is heading towards a major catastrophe. That catastrophe being the unleashing of uh, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the world going into supreme chaos, and... It culminating with Jesus Christ's return in judgment to judge both the living and the dead, and that Jesus Christ is going to literally, well, I should probably read this from the scripture so you don't think I'm losing my mind here. Had to grab this off the printer. Um, that uh, Jesus Christ is literally going to kill. Best way to describe it is kill uh, the the current planet that we're living on and the universe that we're living in, and he's going to raise it again from the dead. That's kind of a death and resurrection theme. And uh, let me help you out here uh, so that you don't think I'm losing it. Second Peter 3.10 uh, uh, through 13, we read, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. 
Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 18, Jesus says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, in other words, Jesus is saying that heaven and earth will pass away, not one iota or dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. Or Matthew twenty four thirty five, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Or if we look ahead to the back of the book, you can always cheat. If you want to know how the story ends, look at the back of the book. Revelation chapter 21 John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, seems pretty basic, right? Well, not an emergent way of thinking. In the emergent way of thinking, we're not heading towards this great catastrophe where the earth and the universe are destroyed and God makes a new heaven and a new earth. No, no, no. In the emergent way of thinking, the world is going to get better and better. Our job as Christians is to make the world a better place because through us, God is going to remake the earth. In fact, think of it this way. You know how right now we're subject to death, the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. Well, in emergent, the emergent way of thinking, if we properly apply the gospel, that is to make the world a better place and, and, and really help God uh, help see his dream for the earth to come about. That would be the dream, his dream of Shalom. Um, then what will happen is, is that entropy will reverse itself. Death will reverse itself. And the planet would rather than getting worse, will get better and 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 better. So it's not that there's this terrible thing. And then when Jesus shows up, he's going to say, congratulations, now I'm king. And, and the dead will rise and the birds will chirp. And, and see, God's going to renew and recreate the world that way. There's no big boogeyman known as the Antichrist coming. The, the, the earth isn't going to melt. The heaven and earth are not going to pass away. Forget what you just read in the Bible. No. So there's a <laughs> the reason why Bell and the gang are doing what they're doing and saying what they're saying is not because the Bible teaches it, but it's because their eschatology, in their, they've bought into this eschatology that things are going to get better and better. And that our job as Christians is to jump in and to make the world a better place because that's how God and Jesus are going to recreate the world. And th that's ultimately how God is going to realize and see his dream of shalom for the world come about. Anyway, so that's why Rob Bell's running around saying that um, life is beautiful and nuclear weapons are ugly. Which, by the way, led me to write a piece of satire, which you can find at a littleleven.com. Um, the name of the satire piece is Rob Bell Claims Nuclear Weapons Are Ugly. Uh, the story reads thus. Emergent rock star and leader of, Ma of the Mars Hill cohort in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has weighed in on the issue of nuclear weapons. Says Bell, quote, nuclear weapons are a direct affront to God's shalom for the world, life is beautiful, and nuclear weapons are ugly. The Pentagon, responding to Rob Bell's statement, uh, conducted a focus group and invited a group of postmodern poets and artists and fiction writers to give their input for making the U.S. nuclear arsenal more beautiful and shalom-like. 
Uh, the solution that the Pentagon has decided to implement as a result of this focus group is the repainting of all of the United States nuclear missiles from white and camouflage to hot pink. That the, the hot pink is in honor of Rob Bell's book, Sex God. And the military will also emblazon the words shalom, or the word shalom, along the sides of each missile in big blue friendly letters. Said one Pentagon spokesman, the last thing the United States military wants to do is be an obstruction to God's dream of shalom for the world. So if you would like to see a, an example of what a hot pink missile with the word the shalom in big blue friendly letters looks like, you can go to a littleleaven.com, uh, published on May 4th, 2009. Rob Bell claims nuclear weapons are ugly. <clears throat> By the way, I happen to live through the nuclear proliferation of the Cold War and lived to see uh, the wall being torn down in communism fall. And uh, one of the ways we did that was by outspending them when it came to the area of nuclear weapons. I do believe that nuclear weapons serve as a wonderful deterrent and are wonderful at keeping peace in the world. <clears throat> peace being shalom. Anyway, uh, switching gears here a little bit here, talking a little bit more about Rob Bell. And uh, can't wait to read this. It's called The Giant Story. It's from Christianity Today. It was posted on uh, April twenty second, 2009 at Christianity Today. If you want to go to their website, uh, you can find it there at ChristianityToday.com. It's an interview with Rob Bell. And uh, this is with an interview by Mark Galli. Mark uh, he says, Rob Bell's latest book, Jesus Wants to Save Christians, uh, published by Zondervan with Ga uh, Don Golden, is his most substantive yet. It's nothing less than a holistic biblical theology of salvation written paradoxically. In Bell's typical sentence fragment style, Christianity Today senior managing editor Mark Golley sat down with Bell, founding pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that would be Mars Hill cohort, uh, to probe him on some of uh, the more striking statements in his book. You say that something has gone terribly wrong with humanity. What do you mean? <laughs> That's the first question. Okay, now stop for a second. Okay, the fact that Mark Golly has picked up on the fact that Rob Bell, a Christian pastor, claims that something has terribly gone wrong with humanity. Um, why is this news and a question that needs to be asked of Rob Bell? Doesn't Scripture tell us already that something terribly, something terrible has gone wrong with humanity? You ever heard of Adam and Eve, the whole serpent Garden of Eden thing, forbidden fruit, fig leaves, you know, that, that thing? Um, man is rebellious by nature against God as a result of man's fall into sin, as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against the clear command and teaching of God. I think that explains how something has terribly gone wrong with uh, humanity. But well, let's find out what Rob Bell means. So Rob Bell answering the question, something has gone terribly wrong with humanity. What do you mean? He says, well, I was born in 1970, a child of the Enlightenment. I was born in 68. Um, child of the Enlightenment? Um, he, you are familiar, uh, Bell, just from a historical note here, philosophically. The Enlightenment ends pretty much um, 
early part of the 19th century and is followed by the Romantics. Just one, just you, you know, Walt Whitman, those guys, Romantic. Anyway, so he says he was a child of the Enlightenment. We put someone on the moon. We'll figure out cancer soon enough. Look at what we can do. And yet more people than ever have died in the last 100 years from bombs. So we have been taught, give Steve Jobs enough time and he'll come up with something. At the same time, Rwanda, 1994, we didn't step in there. Then Darfur, we didn't learn. So we have this profound sense of empowerment coupled with a profound sense of disempowerment. And I think you have a lot of people with a profound sense of angst. Okay, um, we we'll just want to point something out here. Um, how come Rob Bell didn't give us the biblical answer as to what was terribly wrong with humanity? It, we're left scratching our head going, okay, what's it mean to have a sense of empowerment and disempowerment? And ultimately people are left with a sense of angst. Rob, the word you were looking for, by the way, is sin. Sin. It's a real simple concept. Man rebelled and sinned against God. We are now by nature sinful and rebellious against God. That is not humanity's original nature. That is our fallen nature. We continue to the next question. So uh, Golly Assi says, you say Jesus is leading all creation out of the land of violence, sin, and death. And you've added the word violence to Pauline sin and death. Why? Good question, Mark. He says, well, the myth of redemptive violence, Caesar, peace, and victory is in people's bones so deeply that we aren't even aware of it. You crush the opposition. That's how we bring peace. Early, um, Rob, it's real simple. You, you know, I am convinced that this type of stupidity wouldn't exist if we had fought World War Three four years ago. I'm serious. I mean... Nobody, none of the people coming who fought World War II come out. Remember World War One? You know they had this idea that you know we were progressing to this great utopian future, and then World War One breaks out, right? And no, it's hard to even still to this day figure out exactly what lit that particular powder keg off. And so, what did they do? They called it the War to End All Wars. Well, you know. This wasn't exactly in our plans, and you know we, you know, this isn't this isn't the way civilized people bring about peace. But since we have to be fighting this thing, we'll call it the war to end all wars. And then what did they come up with afterwards? The League of Nations. And see, the League of Nations—that was a great human institution set up on these type of ideals that did an absolutely stellar job at preventing World War II. No, they couldn't do it at all. And so we fought World War Two, And as if that wasn't enough, then you have the communists attacking Korea. And then you got the whole Vietnam debacle. It, you know, by the way, the reason why we have armies and we have weapons is because people are bad. They're, they're you know, and so as a result of it, human beings not being good by nature, but being selfish and sinful by nature, unfortunately, we have to formed together as little people groups, little, little tribes, if you would, and pool our resources together as a means of protecting ourselves from bad people, of which we are also bad. Okay, 
I just want to understand, you know, anyway. Anyway, so uh, the myth of redemptive violence. Re- redemptive violence? So early in the biblical narrative, one brother kills the other brother. In the arc uh, from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, there is a growing epidemic of violence. It's uh, it's almost like the writers are saying, look at this. It's like cracks on a windshield. A pebble hits your windshield and it, and it just cracks and cracks. I'm getting my son a video game the other day, and I'm talking to the guy who runs this video store, and he's telling me that when Halo 3 came out, they had 350 people at midnight lined up outside the door. You can't believe the excitement that people have for a game in which you shoot people. Violence is just assumed. It's it's everywhere. <sighs> Rob, you're kidding me, right? You know the reason why he's having a hard time figuring out, you know, why this violence is everywhere? Is because he doesn't believe in the doctrine of original sin. Anyways, so the question is, are you a pacifist or do you think that a truly Christian church has to be a pacifist church? I'm sure he'll answer this whimsically. My dad is a U.S. federal district judge and gets lots of death threats. On Father's Day a couple of years ago, there were bodyguards in the driveway at our house. I'm okay with that. But I sit right in that tension. Sometimes people say no police, no armed forces, no anything. And the truth is, whether I'm falling short of Jesus' teaching or not, there are situations where I'm really glad that there is a policeman standing right there and that he has a gun. So I don't know exactly exactly you work how you work out that detail. But my hope would be that as a Christian, you would have a larger imagination. Take Saddam Hussein. Your first impulse would be, Man, if he wasn't in power, it would be great. And then only the only way to bring in a hundred is to bring in a hundred thousand troops. To me, the third way of Jesus is always asking if there is an imaginative, subversive, brilliant, creative path. What? The third way of Jesus? By the way, if you want to know what that's all about, okay, the, when he talks about the third way of Jesus, this. By the way, my friends, if you're not familiar with Hegelian philosophy, uh, this is where, let me just help you out here. This idea that things are getting better and better and better has to do with the fact that at in the beating heart, in the deep down in the engine of the emergent church movement is Hegelian philosophy. Now, understand something. Hegelian philosophy doesn't believe in real truth as you and I understand it. Okay. For instance, um, if I were to tell you, um, that two plus two equals four, or let me, let me give you a different example. Let me, yeah. Um, that, um, right now in Indianapolis, it's raining. Okay. Now that statement in Indianapolis right now, it's raining means that if it was true, if that was a true statement, if you are listening in downtown Indianapolis, not too far from where we're broadcasting, then you should be able to look outside your window and see raindrops hitting the earth. Okay, If it's dry and sunny, then the statement that I made is not true. Okay, This is what we call the correspondence theory of truth. Okay, A statement is true insofar as it corresponds to reality. Now, in the emergent way of thinking, that's not how truth works, okay? 
in hist- in historical times, we have these different opposing ideas. We have an idea that's called a thesis, and we have its anti-idea called the antithesis, right? And these things are intention, okay? They're kind of like opposite ideas of truth and reality. Now, in, in Hegel's world, the world moves forward in history towards this great utopian end where things get better and better when you find a synthesis between the thesis and the antithesis, okay? In other words, truth is a synthetic thing. You can create a synthetic truth. And so humanity moves forward when you synthesize two opposite ideas, two contradictory ideas, which is ridiculous because A only equals A and A cannot equal non-A in in any way. You get what I'm saying? Let me give you an example. Here in the world of uh, uh, U.S. politics, we have liberals and we have conservatives, right? Two polar opposites, philosophically, politically, philosophy. And so what happens is, is that the emergent church wouldn't want to side with either conservatives or liberals, but try to figure out how to hold both views in tension so that you can have a third way, which would be a synthesis between the two ideas. So what the emergents are literally trying to do in Christian theology is synthesize fundamentalist conservative ideas and liberal modernist ideas into a third way, which is a synthesis of the two things. And by coming up with that new synthetic truth, Humanity moves forward towards that ultimately great thing where it gets better and better and better and better and better and better and not worse and worse and worse, but better and better and better and better. And um, and then God's dream of shalom is realized on the earth. Okay? So when our good friend, um, cohort leader of uh, Mars Hill, talks about Jesus' third way, third way is code talk. For us, that Jesus is looking for a synthesis, a third way to synthesize these ant- this thesis and antithesis into a way that moves things forward. That's why, in Bell's view, Jesus is always asking if there's an imaginative, subversive, or brilliant or creative path. Why? Because the tr- the, the truth that Jesus is looking for in order to see his dream of shalom come to the earth would somehow take the two extremes, Saddam Hussein has to be killed or we just leave him alone, and find a, an imaginative third path that synthesizes those two extremes. Got it? Anyway, moving ahead in the piece, if you want to read the whole thing, uh, again, go to Christianity.com, uh, Christianity Today, sorry, ChristianityToday.com, and you can find it there. Um, talking about his concept of the gospel, um, let me read the question. It says, you're essentially reframing the gospel, at least the gospel you inherited, the gospel we have known as the gospel in North America for the last couple hundred years. Bell says, I'm leery of people who have very clear ideas of what they're doing from outside of themselves. 
quote, you have to understand that I'm doing this and doing and doing this. I would say that for 10 years, I have tried to invite people to trust Jesus. You can trust this Jesus. You can trust him. Past, present, future sins, mistakes, money, sexuality. I think this Jesus can be trusted. I often put it this way. If there is a God, some sort of divine being, mind, spirit, and all of this is not just some random chance thing and history has some sort of movement to it, um, and you have a connection with whatever that is awesome, hard and awesome and creative and challenging and provoking. And there is this group of people who say that whoever that being is came up, uh, came up among us and took on flesh and blood. Andrew Sullivan talks about this immense occasion uh, the world could not bear. So a church would be this odd blend of swagger and open tomb come on and humility and mystery and resurrection accounts are jumbled and don't really line up with each other. I, I really relate to that. Yet something momentous has burst forth in the middle of history. You just have to have faith and you, and you get caught up into something. I, I'd like to say I practice militant mysticism. I'm really absolutely sure of, of some things that I don't quite know. Man. Anyway. So, um, golly, um, asks Rob Bell, who is now a, who's now openly saying that he's a militant, he's into militant mysticism. He says, how would you present the gospel on Twitter? Not a bad question to throw at Rob Bell. So here's the answer that Rob Bell gives. He says, well, I would say that history is headed somewhere. By the way, this is his definition of the gospel. Listen carefully. I would say that history is headed somewhere. The thousands of little ways in which you are tempted to believe that hope might actually be a legitimate response to the insanity of the world actually can be trusted. And the the Christian story is that a tomb is empty and a movement has actually begun that has been present in a sense all along in creation and all those times when your cynicism was at odds with an impulse within you that said that this little thing might be about something bigger, those tiny little slivers may in fact be connected to something really, really big. Um, That was his answer as to how he would present the gospel on Twitter. And that doesn't even count as a gospel presentation because there was no gospel in it. And so uh, Golly points out, he says, not quite down to 440 characters. And Bell says, well, you you can't really tweet the gospel. I'm convinced that I'm not doing anything new. I'm hoping that I'm in a long tradition. He says you can't tweet the gospel. For those of you who are following me on Twitter, um, right now it is uh, 7.43 Eastern time on uh, May 4th, 2009. And I'm going to attempt what Rob Bell says is impossible. And I'm going to... Tweet the gospel. Those of you following me on Twitter, um, I, I'm not trying to show off or anything like that. But uh, here I go. I'm going to hit the send button, and I'm, I'm just to make it so that you can see me on Facebook. There we go. I've just, believe it or not, I've tweeted the gospel, and it came in, in a, under 140 characters. Here's what it says. It says the gospel colon. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, and he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. I even put in a bitly uh, link to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, 
uh, as part of that little tweet, by the way. Um, so apparently this is not possible, but yet somehow I found a way to tweet out the gospel in less than 140 characters. And on top of it, even linked to uh, a biblical passage that claims that what I just said is the actually the gospel. In fact, let me read to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Okay, just from his language, can we determine what it is that he's talking about? Yes, the answer to the question is we are talking about the gospel. Uh, And Paul says, The gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I mean, this is a powerful gospel, folks. He says that this is the gospel which is saving you, and which you're standing, and you're holding fast, and this is the gospel that he preached to them. And what is the gospel? Are you ready? Drum roll. Here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Yeah, that, um, folks, that's the gospel. Now, remember, the, you're sitting there go, that's it? Isn't it more than that? No, it's not. That's the gospel. Remember, the gospel is good news, right? And in order for you to understand good news, you first have to understand the bad news. What was the bad news? Oh, well, that we're all sinners and that we face God's judgment and his wrath when he returns at the end of the ages and destroys heaven and earth. Um, so the bad news is that we're all sinners held in bondage to sin, death, and the devil, Right? The good news, simply good news, extra, extra, read all about it. Here's what the good news is. Christ dies for our sins. And this is according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. Extra, extra, this is the good news. Yeah, that's it. Repent of your sins, therefore. And receive this good news of the forgiveness of sins, a full pardon in Jesus Christ for you by what Christ did on the cross for you in accordance with the scriptures of all things. You do not have to face God's wrath and punishment and by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, died for your sins, you are declared To be not guilty. You will not face God's wrath. You will not face God's judgment. He will not come to you and throw your carcass into the lake of fire where you'll suffer eternal torment under his wrath forever and ever. Instead, he will welcome you into his kingdom. He's going to throw a big party. And everybody who's going to be there is going to say, you know what's funny about this is that, you know, He declared me to be righteous, but I'm as guilty as sin. There's going to be prostitutes at this party. There's going to be drunkards at this party. There is going to be homosexuals at this party. There are going to be tax collectors, lawyers, really schlocky politicians, and even 
internet-based radio personalities. There's going to be brawlers. There's going to be bank robbers. There's going to be petty thieves. We're talking the rabble of the earth. They're all going to be there because Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Tell me that's not good news. And contrary to what Rob Bell said, I had no problem whatsoever tweeting that out on Twitter in less than 140 characters. This gospel that uh, Bell gives in this thing, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something completely different. And I would remind Bell, I would remind Bell at this point, since he's preaching another gospel, that gospel that he gave ain't the real one. It ain't the one that Paul preached. Uh, I, Paul, the apostle Paul, who, by the way, has met Jesus, met Jesus Christ face to face, got his doctrine and his theology from Jesus Christ directly. Um, writing to the Galatian church who had uh, somehow wandered off the Christian reservation and started following a different gospel. Paul writes to them. He says, Galatians chapter one, verse six, I read, I'm astonished at you Galatian churches. You're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned, accursed, anathema. As we have said before, I'm not going to say it again in case you missed it. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel that is contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Rob Bell, it is no small thing that you are preaching a gospel that is contrary to the one that is laid out for us in Scripture and contrary to the gospel that Paul preached. We got problems right there in Grand Rapids. And folks, if you know people who are reading Rob Bell's stuff, get Bob DeWay's latest book, read it, and contend with them. Contend for them. Bring them the truth and show them the truth so that God will set them free from the bondage of this stuff because that ain't the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's preaching. That's something completely different. All right, we've come to that part of our program where we lovingly do our, um, well, it's our sermon review time, which requires us to pull out our sermon review music uh, hit it, Maestro. From the good, the bad, and the ugly, I get a feeling that today we're going to have to be uh, linking up on the podcast there at iTunes an emergency gospel sermon. We're going to be reviewing a sermon by Erwin McManus, that ever-so-relevant, cutting-edge, creative maestro of cultural architecture. 
Yeah. Can't wait to dive into his sermon. Yeah, I've been receiving a lot of emails from you folks. All right, enough of that music already. All right, thank you. All right. Requesting that I review an Erwin McManus sermon. So I subscribed to the Mosaic podcast, Mosaic being the name of his church. And uh, this is the sermon that's currently number one on the list. I'm assuming that we'll get yesterday's sermon eventually, but yesterday's sermon didn't show up. The name of the sermon is Broken Relationships, a message by Erwin McManus. Um, So apparently um, Jesus, uh, well, we're going to... What I want you to listen for in this sermon, by the way, each and every sermon that we do a review here at Fighting for the Faith, there is actually an underlying reason for it. It's consider it to be an odd form of catechesis, if you would, um, it, by way of what we call foiling. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but the idea basically goes like this. One of the ways you show uh, what the truth is is by showing what the error is. So listen carefully to this sermon, and I want you to pay close attention to hear, see if you hear the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news that Christ died for your sins. So listen closely to hear what the problem is that Erwin McManus lays out for us in this sermon. What's the big idea behind the sermon? Broken relationships, I can kind of tell you right now. But see what the solution is. Is the solution something you've got to do? Or is he giving you the biblical gospel, the good news of what Christ did for you? So without any further ado, here's that uber-relevant Cultural, architectural, creative guy, Erwin McManus, on broken relationships. Presentation of Mosaic, a community of faith, love, and hope. To support future podcasts, please visit our online giving page at my.mosaic.org. Yeah, I'll have to cut that little piece out. Here we go. Father, I just sense that you have already spoken to so many of us and... Uh, I gotta stop there, huh? Father, I sense that. Is he using the force? How does he sense these things? Maybe uh, Christians have a sixth sense. He's sensing something. That your spirit is already decoding and unlocking places in our hearts, and we need to allow you. The spirit's decoding. Where in the Bible does it talk about the Spirit decoding anything? Need to go. Lord God, we, we want to be sensitive to what you're saying to us and to allow you to meet us in this moment. I pray, God, for those who are here and maybe they're going through some really difficult times and they just need to catch their breath. I just ask you, God, may this time be a time of refreshment and healing, time of encouragement and hope for them. We we fall so short of not only your ideal for us, but God, our own expectations of ourselves. And we are so thankful that we can come and bask and 
be immersed in your goodness and grace. And we pause and thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. So we're looking together at this theme, pretty simple and straightforward, maybe stark, broke. We have nothing else to lose. And last week we began by thinking about those moments where we have broken lives and and how to move from feeling as if everything is shattered and move from being broke to allowing ourselves to be broken so that God can work deeply in our lives to, well, then going for broke. And the wonderful thing about having nothing else to lose is that you can pretty much risk everything since you have nothing left and begin to create a new life. And this morning, I want to take some time and talk about broken relationships because if there's anything that interconnects us all and that becomes the, the dominant platform of our brokenness, it is in the dynamic of relationships. Okay, got to stop for a second. What's the thing he's saying is uniting us all? Some kind of a dynamic regarding relationships? Hmm. Pay attention to how he defines this. In fact, in the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, Jesus has a conversation with one of the teachers of the law, and i like for us to look at it together. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. I'm sure you're familiar with this dialogue. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. To love him with all of your hearts, with all of your understanding, and with all of your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. i got to stop there. Notice that Jesus said you're not far from the kingdom of God. Again, this is not exactly him saying, you're almost there, you're, you're getting there, you're warmer, you're warmer, you're, you're burning up. No, that's not the purpose of the law. Romans chapter 3, we read, verse, well, let me, let me grab a little context here. We read, starting at verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that would be Gentiles, that's everybody, because from a Jewish point of view, you have Jews and Gentiles, that's the only major distinctions there is in the world as far as they're concerned, that Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. 
No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, and the venom of asps, that would be snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, how do you summarize the law? Love God and love your neighbor. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth might be stopped or shut up, and the whole world might be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Jesus, in meeting with this guy, he says what the two greatest commandments are. And Jesus says, you're not far. Yeah, but which direction do I go? I'm not far. He needs the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of sins, the law won't get him there. The law will only accuse. Now listen carefully to see if if Erwin here is uh, using the law to accuse us or if he completely misses the point as to what the purpose of the law is. We continue. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is a pretty rare compliment from Jesus to any individual. Normally, it seems that when The religious leaders, the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, those described in these particular tribes, whenever they engaged in Jesus, it didn't go that well for them. Usually Jesus stripped them of all their facade and pretension and religiosity and left them naked in their hypocrisy, but this time it's different. This time Jesus actually commends this individual and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, I can't even begin... To think that I understand the full implications of what that means. But whatever it means to not be far from the kingdom of God, wouldn't you love to be there? Of course, if you look at it... (laughs) No, I wouldn't. Because how would I know what way to go? Do I go up? Do I go down? Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go north? Do I go south, east, west, north, southeast? Do I, do I need a GPS? To, no. Oh, man. It's more nuanced. You don't want to be very, very near the kingdom of God, but never actually be in the kingdom of God. And, and so he's moving in the right direction, but there's still something there. No, Jesus doesn't say he's moving. To be accessed. But what Jesus is telling us is once you understand the centrality of relationships, you've begun to understand the economy of the kingdom of God. What? Once I understand the centrality of relationships, I begin to understand the economy of God or the kingdom of God. Where did you read that in the passage? The closer you move to a value of relationships having the highest value, the closer you move to the kingdom of God. He has no clue what he's talking about. None whatsoever. So it shouldn't surprise us that that the sum total of Our lives will be measured in the relationships that we have and the way we treat them and the way they... Well, that is not very good. The sum total of my life will be judged by the relationships I have. I am so 
well, I'm in I'm in so much trouble. It's not even funny, dude. You want you know how many relationships I have screwed up in this world? Uh, there's it's hopeless for me. Forget it. I'm gonna go party. I, I'm walking away from this Christianity thing because there's no way on earth I can measure up if I'm gonna be judged based upon my relationships. Forget it. I'm gone. I'm dead. I'm toast. I, I might as well have fun now before God judges me because the only thing that awaits me is hell. We value them in the way that they play out in terms of health or brokenness. And so the strange thing about being broke is that you can lose all of your money. But if your relationships are healthy, you will not look at this time in your life as a dark period. But ironically, even in the midst of a time of economic turmoil and disarray, even if you make an immense amount of money, but you lose all the relationships that you value, you'll look back when you're taking your last breaths in life and you will regret this moment in your life. All the money in the world will not buy you back the relationships that you've lost. Law or gospel? Law or gospel? Do you, are you hearing any good news in there at all? Nope. The sense of loss and failure when it comes to people. Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of God is about a series of relationships, in a sense, dimensions of relationship. It's a concentric circle. And, and, and of course, he... Where are you finding those concentric circles inside of this text? You know, um, I've seen concentric circles in the crop circles and stuff like that. Is that what you're talking about? So Jesus is talking about relationship crop circles? Begins by putting that which is primary first. The Lord our God, he is one. Oh, here we go again. With a whole other list. Make, I wonder how this list would compare with that guy from Virginia Beach. Um, the uh, My Lame Relation... The pastor who preached that my my lame relationship sermon. You remember, it was all about making a list. Let's see how his list compares. Is this the law or is it the gospel? We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then Jesus adds this to the mix, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And and what's interesting is this teacher of the law doesn't argue with Jesus over his math. He exactly understands what Jesus is saying. He says, this is exactly right, Jesus. This is what it's all about. This is what life is about. And in our relationships, that dominant arena where we understand our health or dysfunction is in our relationships to other people, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And when we look back on our lives, we will measure our lives based on how we relate to each other, to one another, to others. And and so we're going to measure our lives based upon how we related to each other. Man, I need a heck. I need a lot more Facebook friends. Quick, I, I, th- it might determine whether or not I make it into heaven. In, in fact, uh, on Friday, I, I think it was, I got on a plane. It was last week, and I took off flying across the country, and I forgot my BlackBerry, which is why I need to keep it close right now because I'm still going through that crisis. And I realized that one of the things that's happened through my BlackBerry is this dominant and continuous sense of connectedness. You're, you're talking, interacting with the world every second of your life. 
he's a major Twitterer, by the way, and I do subscribe to McManus's uh, tweets, and I do remember him tweeting about losing his BlackBerry. So uh, when he broadcasted that to the world, I was one of the people who happened to catch that particular dispatch from him. But at the same time, one of the most peculiar things is to be in a room watching everyone on their BlackBerry ignoring each other. And so it seems we've gotten better at being connected to the person furthest from us, and we've gotten a lot worse at staying connected with the people closest to us. And so when Jesus talks about the highest value in life, he's talking about the relationships we have with one another. And how do we heal those if they're broken? Relationships can seem so complex if you're married. Doesn't it seem so complex? I mean, it's hard just knowing how to keep one person happy, much less the world happy. Well, I mean, don't you know that the solution to the complexities of a marriage is just have a 30-day sex challenge. That'll clear everything right up. It's hard to know how to keep moving into layers and levels of intimacy with one human being, much less building and maintaining meaningful relationships with many other people. And yet we human beings are designed for relationship. We don't even have to have any kind of objective measuring scale or any kind of technology to help us have insight. We know when we're close to someone and when we're not. We know when someone likes us and when they don't. And if you have any modicum of relational intelligence, you know when your actions bring people closer, when your actions actually push people away. And if I were to break down the dynamics of human relationships into some simple arenas, I think there are basically three things that if you can focus on throughout your life, you will have healthy relationships. One is this characteristic defined as humility. Your relationships will be... Notice, here's a list here of things for you to do. Number one is be humble. Healthy or unhealthy based on your willingness to place others above yourself, which is a great practical description of humility. Now, wait a second. Um, Just got a question for you. Do you think that the way you uh, cultivate humility in somebody is by telling them that they need to be humble, uh, apart from Christ... Or do you think that through the preaching of the gospel that the Holy Spirit works humility in people as a fruit of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to give you a list. And one of the things I want you to do is I want you to be humble because that's the important thing to do because in the in, in the God's economy, relationships matter and you're going to ultimately be judged based on, on, on how well you do relationships, Right. But that's not how the scripture teaches us humility. It doesn't teach us humility apart from the gospel. It teaches us humility as a fruit of the gospel. Let me explain. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writing on the topic of humility. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind with one another. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but instead in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. How, Paul, how? Let each of you... Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Still don't understand? Let me put it to you this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
Though he was in the same in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and every, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a huge, huge world of difference between browbeating somebody with the law. You need to be humble. You need to do things out of humility because you're going to be judged based upon how well your your relationships are. Be humble. Here's These are three things. Hum, be, um, beating them over the head and trying to encourage them to be humble through the law. But Christian sanctification ultimately doesn't come through the law. It comes through the gospel. We love him because he first loved us. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Humility is absolutely the right thing that we want to cultivate in our walk and our attitudes towards others. And it comes about as a fruit of faith that focuses on Christ and takes a look at the deeper understandings of what the cross was all about. Think about it. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, doesn't even consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead makes himself a servant to all. Didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve. And he humbles himself to the point of obedience, even obedience to, to the point of death on a cross. Shameful death, cursed death, naked death. And even his death was an act of service and love towards us. Let this attitude also be in you because this is yours in Christ Jesus. Two completely different teachings. One, through the power of the Holy Spirit, produces the fruit of humility in our lives. The other, self-righteousness. The more you live your life placing yourself above others, the more you'll find yourself in continuous relational disarray. And maybe you've had those conversations like, you only think of yourself. That sort of code word for arrogant. Code word for narcissistic. Code word for, well, lack of humility. And, and it's not really, you know, nuclear physics or brains, you know, surgery or anything like that. It's just very, very simple. People who place others above themselves have healthier relationships than those who put themselves above others. It's not that difficult to figure out. Stop. Listen, what's his motivation? Why should you be humble? Uh, because you'll be happier. It's all about you. Humility for a selfish reason. Was that the reasoning that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit in Philippians chapter 2? Because you'll be happier. 
And so if you have problems in relationships, one of the things you need to look at is, am I continuously placing myself over the people in my life? If you have problem maintaining friendships, maintaining relationships, if those relationships keep to come and go, maybe you're incredibly winsome and magnetic up front, but it seems as if people dissipate as quickly as they are attracted to you. You might want to see if you actually are using people for your own benefit rather than serving people for their good. And you know as well as I do, you love being around people who place you above themselves. There's just something wonderful about a person who lives their life to serve others and lives a life of abject humility. And, and, and I think this is where it's very practical and very real because sometimes, you know, we use all this kind of, you know, goofy language about humility. How do you know when you're humble? Because if once you think you're humble, then you're not humble and all that sort of thing. And it's an endless catch-22. Well, here's the simple thing. If you think you're better than other people, you lack the humility that you need. But if the common practice and pattern and rhythm of your life is to place others above yourself, you have but in the most practical and powerful way is the virtue, the attribute of humility. Another significant dynamic in maintaining healthy relationships and moving from broken relationships to healthy relationships. So by the way, this is a, a part of the process of restoring, repairing, and redeeming relationships. Start putting others above yourself and things will start getting better. Second character. Mm. Uh, me obeying the law in order for me to have a better life. Is that true selflessness? Or is that ultimately selfishness just dressed in religious drag? Characteristic is this thing that we describe as, as faithfulness. It's maintaining our social contracts. See, if you have broken relationships and your relationships have, are constantly in disarray and they're dismantling, it may simply be because of this huge thing that you don't keep your commitments, you don't keep your word. See, people with healthy relationships develop healthy social contracts where they do what they say and only say what they'll do. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone who just doesn't ever follow through on the things they told you they're going to do? It's really hard to maintain an ongoing and to have a deepening relationship with a person who does not keep their commitments. And so it's better not to commit, like I'll see you at 7. It's better to say I'll see you somewhere around 7. Because they know that's true, I know it's true, and you're doing the best you can. But if you don't, or so, if you say, yes, I'll be happy to go out on, on Saturday night, and then you don't. Or, yeah, I'll take care of that for you, and then you don't. I mean, how many times have you found yourself making a commitment to someone and then not keeping it? In fact, let me challenge you, even this week, keep a log of every commitment you make and every commitment you fulfill. And if the ratio, well, is disproportionately scaled toward commitments you make and kind of weak on the commitments I keep... Don't be surprised if your relationships are constantly dissipating and people are moving away from you. It's not that they may not like you. It's that they don't trust you. Faithfulness is one of those basic characteristics of a person who can take... What about the faithfulness of a pastor to the job that he's been given by God to faithfully preach God's word? And to proclaim Christ and him crucified. As Paul said, I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. This is a fine and dandy law-based sermon, but I'm not hearing the gospel at all. And the, the 
steps that he's giving, where's the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God, the uh, abiding in Christ, and the fruits of the Holy Spirit produced by Word and sacrament and and through the power of the holy no i don't i'm not hearing any of that it's just you got to you got stuff to do get busy continually has healthier and healthier relationships and and by the way it doesn't mean that you don't mess up we all mess up but then you have to own that mess okay so when i mess up i have to own it um erwin um i don't know about you but uh, I've messed up so bad in my life that um, if I end up owning it, um, I'm in trouble because um, I really don't want to be left holding the bag when it comes to my sins uh, because they're really, really, really bad. And I confess I'm the one who's committed them and... Um, I have not loved God with all of my heart. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself and some of my most cherished relationships. I've um, taken to the brink, man. Um, and if I end up owning my thing, then I'm ultimately the one who has to be responsible. Where's, where's the forgiveness of sins and what Christ did for me? How does that play into this? It's amazing how forgiving people are and how gracious they are when you have given your best effort to keep your commitments. Because, by the way, none of us are God. And all of us find ourselves in situations where we've, well, unfortunately made more than one commitment that needs to be kept at the same moment. Have you ever been there? Yeah. um, What about you talk about the forgiveness of others? Um, What about God's forgiveness? You You heard the good news. Christ died for our sins. Heard of it? Heard of it? It's called the gospel. And I've been there going, what was I thinking? I cannot be in New York and L.A. on the same moment, on the same time, at the same hour. You know, how could I do this? And, and, and I've... Oh, that was just an oopsie. You know, a scheduling conflict. I thought you were talking about something serious like a sin. I've had times where I've had to rearrange my schedule or, or work through commitments because I simply couldn't keep every commitment that I thought I could make and keep. And I found myself on the negative end of having to say, I'm so sorry. I'm not capable of keeping this commitment. And maybe you're different than me, but I, I find myself making that mistake. I don't make mistakes. I sin. Oh, boy, do I sin. I mean, on a good day, they look like mistakes. But even those are sins. It's incredibly rewarding to step into that moment, own it, and do the best you can to make things right. Own it and do the best that you can to make things right. Is that the gospel or is that some kind of watered down version of the law? Because the more faithful you are, the more you keep your social contracts, the more people will trust you and the closer people will move to you in relationship. Because intimacy demands trust. Intimacy demands trust. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have the ability to extend the forgiveness of sins that's been offered to me through the gospel. 
And as a result of it, that love covers over a multitude of sins to the point where those who haven't been faithful to me and who haven't kept their commitments and followed through on their words, I can, I can offer Christ mercy and grace to them because Christ has offered me that exact same mercy and grace a million times more than I would ever need to extend to somebody else. And as a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, that when I have followed through on my commitments and I have sinned against them, I can come to them and confess my sins and they can extend to me the same mercy that Jesus Christ extends to them. And as a result of it, I have this wonderful fellowship with other Christian believers that centers on Christ and the gospel. Neil, that, what I'm describing, though, is something completely different than what you're describing, Erwin. Um, just do your best. And the third characteristic is this thing that we would describe as gratitude. See, ironically, grateful people have better, healthier, deeper, sustaining relationships than people who are ungrateful. Okay, now, this would be a perfect place for you to bring in the gospel. Let's see if he does. Maybe he will. I mean, because all of these guys, we hear these gospel nuggets. I mean, the beef sprinkles, remember, the, where's the beef? Uh, the, the beef sprinkle usually comes in about this time. Let's see if we get a beef sprinkle. And for at least two simple reasons. One is that grateful people are more willing to give forgiveness and more likely to seek forgiveness. See, people who are ungrateful are trapped usually in bitterness. And so they see the world as owing them something. They see every relationship as, as, as an opportunity to meet this cavernous need and longing and emptiness inside of them. And so they become relational consumers. But people who are grateful are always finding the beauty and wonder and extraordinary nature of life. And so they always have something to contribute. Okay, uh, can we talk about the gratitude that comes from the forgiveness of sins because of what Christ did for us on the cross? It's really fun to be around grateful people because they're always helping you see the beauty and opportunities all around you. Ungrateful people suck all the hope and inspiration out of the moments they're in and the places they are. And, and so very simply, you can look at yourself and ask yourself and evaluate in your own, are you willing to seek forgiveness whenever you mess up? From whom? From whom? Are you willing to own your, your, your failures and your shortcomings and go to people and say, man, I am so sorry. I oh, man, you're a Christian pastor and you're not even talking about the forgiveness offered by Christ and the gratitude that comes from a grateful heart for having it. What did Christ say? He, he who those who he who's been forgiven much loves much. Blew it, would you forgive me? People who seek forgiveness are those who live a life of greater gratitude because they don't see asking for forgiveness as a loss of their own value. From whom am I seeking forgiveness? But there are also those people who are willing to give forgiveness. And people who are willing to give forgiveness are people who have deeper and more lasting relationships because everybody will let you down. I'm not trying to be pessimistic or cynical or skeptical about human relationship. This is just the way it is. Everyone will let you down. This is just frustrating. I mean, here we are dealing with gospel categories of forgiveness and confessing. And and oh, Jesus is now, well, 
We, I'm sorry, we're doing a sermon on Jesus the lawgiver, apparently. Have you discovered that yet? Now here, that's bad news, but here's worse news, just so we can keep going down. Everyone here will let other people down, too. Not only will everyone let you down at some point along the way, but you will let others down, too. Right on. Yeah, we do that. It's just the nature of who we are. Sinful. You want to talk about sin now? Please talk about sin and the forgiveness of sins. Please, please. Jesus Christ died for our sins, that stuff. We all fall short of our ideal and the ideal of others. What? We all fall short of that. Uh, uh, Hello? We all fall short of God. Oh, man. Um... Um, fall short of the glory of God that, oh man, oh man, okay. For us. And when we are people who are ready and willing and generous in forgiveness, relationships can build and grow and deepen. Man. Law. Man, I don't know about you, but I, 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 most of the time I make my mistakes oblivious that I made them. It's only when the person comes to me and says, do you know what you did? I go, oh, man, how come I didn't see that? It's simple because I'm stupid. It, you know, and, and, and sometimes you're just relationally stupid, aren't you? you know, okay, I wouldn't say you're stupid, Erwin. At this point, I would say you're gospelly challenged. This is the problem. You're, you're geared towards the law, and this is an all-law sermon up to this point. I'm hoping, hoping that you uh, can see that through this review here. Uh, that you're missing the most important thing, and that's the gospel. You're kind of talking around it. Uh, but it's really frustrating because I feel like I'm watching a blind man wander around. All right, can you head towards the gospel, you know, the, the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ? I mean, you got time. I mean, look, you might still do it. Let's see. Now, sometimes you're just tired, you're busy, you're exhausted, you're unaware, you're distracted, you're focused on something else, and you make a mistake and you hurt someone, and you cause damage that you just didn't consider in the moment. And, and one of the most powerful things you can do in the world is to realize that the highest value is reclaiming that relationship to the best of your ability. It costs you nothing. Best of my ability. Jesus, does he have anything to do with this? Except for him being the new lawgiver? Costs you nothing to seek forgiveness and to give forgiveness. But it really elevates your value. So it costs me nothing, but man, do I gain a lot from doing it. So I should do it for selfish reasons. And if you're going to begin to restore broken relationships, you have to focus on these very significant characteristics. By the way, you cannot have relational health without having personal health. You know, talking about broken relationships, you know, it's funny that you would talk about that, Erwin, because the Bible actually happens to talk about the ministry of reconciliation. I not, not, don't know if you're familiar with it, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
it talks about us having a ministry of reconciliation. Listen to this. From now on, we regard no one. This is Second Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is relationship talk. So we find out this great news that Christ has reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us and, uh, and uh, let's see, uh, uh, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Basically, God is making his appeal through us. So therefore, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that great news? This idea, loving God, we don't because of our sinfulness, and we don't love others because of our sinfulness, but we've been given this ministry as Christians, the ministry of reconciliation, announcing to the world that God was in Christ, reconciling us to himself through his death on the cross. Talk about restoring broken relationships. That's the biggie. And so much flows from a restored relationship to God through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I hope Erwin gets to that. You see, the, the health of your relationships are the best indicator of your own personal health. I know there are people who say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm doing great. I don't have any friends. I don't have any meaningful relationships, and everybody out there is mad at me, but I'm doing great. No, you're, you're doing as well as your relationships are doing, by the way. Ugh. And if you are alone and lack friends and have no intimacy and lack community and have no one you trust and no one who trusts you, you are not doing well. Not personally, not in any way you can think of. But if I apply your three things, humility, faithfulness, and gratitude, then that shows that I'm healthy. What about the forgiveness of sins? What about... Not relationally, not emotionally, not psychologically, not psychotically. You are not doing well when your relationships are not doing well. And by the way, there's no way in the world you can have character of substance without healthy relationships. Now, it doesn't mean that all of your relationships will go well when you have character. Sometimes your relationships go badly because you have character. But this is what I mean. All of your relationships are a reflection of your character. So, by the way, if you don't have conflict with anyone, you probably don't have very healthy, strong character. It may be that you're always adjusting and adapting and pretending to agree with everyone in the world. It is true that you will be as defined by your friends as you are by your enemies. And, and there are times in your life where you must create conflict. There are times in your life where you have to speak up. There are times in your life where you have to stand against everyone else's opinion. 
And the momentum of the world around you cannot determine the direction that you go. And so sometimes having strength of character results in relational crisis and conflict. I don't mean that when you have healthy character that you always have healthy relationships in terms of everyone agrees with you. But the reason they're healthy is because they're authentic. They're true. And so someone you love is living in a self-destructive relationship or, or pattern and they're an alcoholic or they're addicted to drugs or they're in some kind of destructive behavior. If you don't say something... It's as much a reflection of a lack of character in your life as it is the destructive behavior in theirs. So that means that I'm doing the right thing by pointing out the fact that you're teaching false doctrine by teaching the law and not the gospel. Just a question. But what is also true is that your relationships are not only connected to your own personal character and personal health, but they're connected to your spiritual health and vitality. You cannot possibly convince anyone who understands the way relationships work that you could have unhealthy, endless devastation in human relationships and be spiritually vibrant and connected to God. Your relationship to God affects your own personal health and it affects your relational health. Well, by the way, it takes us into the second and third dimension. When you, This first dimension, this first concentric circle of relationships is a relationship with other, but you need to have a healthy relationship to yourself. And Jesus says you to love your neighbor as yourself, which means that there's a, a powerful relationship to the way you understand and relate to who you are. Now, there's a difference between loving yourself and being in love with yourself. It's subtle, but it's really important. All right. When you're in love with yourself, you become what sociologists would describe as, well, a narcissist. And recently I was hearing the division between a narcissist and a psychopath, and a narcissist is in love with themselves and only themselves, and a psychopath hates everyone else. And I'm going, oh, that's a nice distinction. And, And so I'm hoping that you're not a psychopath. You know, stop at just loving yourself and no one else, but don't hate the rest of us. And so if a psychopath is a person who hates everyone and only loves himself, and a narcissist is a person who only loves himself and isn't really thinking that much about the rest of us, well, then you can follow this thing further down and go, okay, a person who actually has emotional health is a person who loves themselves and loves the world, who loves others. See, sometimes we're in love with ourselves, and, and, and so we just feel like we should be the object of everyone's love and affection. But healthy self-esteem, healthy self-awareness, healthy self-regard is not about thinking too little of yourself. Just as much as it is not about thinking too much of yourself. And, and I think this is the dynamic. Sometimes we can think too much of ourselves, and sometimes we can think too little of ourselves. When we think too much of ourselves, we overestimate our... Um, Erwin, where are you getting any of this? And that whole self-esteem thing, where is that in the Bible? Value in the scheme of everything. But when we, when we think too little of ourselves, we move into this self-destructive, self-loathing. And, and, and the scriptures deal with both. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But at the same time, the scriptures tell us that we are marvelously and wonderfully made in the image and likeness of God. And it's funny, when you have really good people in your life, it helps you make sure you don't go to either side, doesn't it? This past week, we were um, at, at a part of an event and we were... What? Oh, man.
We were hosting an event, and, and there's a guy named Blake who's a part of our community here at Mosaic, and he uh, founded Tom's Shoes, if you're familiar with Tom's Shoes. And it's the most beautiful company. For every pair of shoes that they sell, they actually give an equal pair of shoes to someone in Ethiopia or Argentina who needs a pair of shoes. And, and it's just such a joy to have him as a part of our community. And, and he's been coming to Mosaic for several years and, and started Tom's and first just started selling a few hundred shoes. And um, just a year ago, I think it was, the most shoes he ever sold in a day was at Mosaic when we did a Tom's shoe day, a giveaway day at the Mayan and gave a hundred and something like 150 shoes away. And it was a beautiful, beautiful day. And now they're giving, they gave away like a quarter of a million shoes. And this next year, they're going to give away about a million shoes. And if you're watching the masters, you saw an AT&T commercial with Blake on there talking about everywhere he goes around the world, giving away Tom's shoes. He uses AT&T nice and brand placement. And and so I, I did this hour Q&A with Blake and asking him about starting Tom's Shoes. And, 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 you know, and it was such a wonderful thing to hear him say he never thought about being rich. He never thought about making money. He just thought about meeting a need. And by trying to serve others, he ends up starting this incredibly beautiful and successful company. And, and I think that's a part of the way God wants us to live our lives, where we're giving ourselves away. And as we give ourselves away, we actually find so much good coming toward us. And, and Mariah, you know, my, did I mention Mariah is my daughter? And, uh, and she was there at the event, and she loves Blake, and he's such a nice guy, and, and, and so bright and so gifted, and everything about him is extraordinary. And, and we, we, we went home that uh, and Mariah went home that night, and I stayed and had to work all day, and I got home late that night. And Mariah saw me and ran to me, and I, and I was, actually I popped down on the sofa because I was so tired. And she ran over to me, and she grabbed my hands and made me stand up and hugged me and I, I was thinking to myself I feel so good Mariah just loves me and Mariah hugged me and said oh dad I love Blake <laughs> and I, I said that's really really bad timing yeah, you, you can't hug me make me stand up to hug you to tell me how much you love Blake and, I, and, this, and I'm hugging her going strangely enough me too and uh, I love Blake too so we're hugging each other talking about how much we love Blake <laughs> and, and it's a great way of making sure that you don't really think too much of yourself and you see when you're around really wonderful beautiful talented gifted people who are living their lives for the best Purposes. It helps you not to think too much of yourself because you realize that you have the privilege of living among incredibly beautiful and wonderful people. And, and the wonderful thing is that when they're willing to, you know... I mean, these platitudes sound really um, spiritual and deep and kind of right. Um, but where is this in the Bible, Erwin? And why is it that when you talked about broken relationships, you're not talking about the big one? Um, believe in, in your dreams and your life, and, and I still got the hug, you know. You also don't think too little of yourself because you realize you have a contribution to make in the world also. And Jesus tells us that, that our relationships to others and our relationship to ourselves is really essential to our own vibrancy and maturity. And he says, though, it all begins here. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Wrong. It doesn't begin there. It begins with the gospel. 
Well, actually, technically, you might be right. It begins with the law. Because I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm a sinner. I, I This is not good news. The love of God is not the gospel. That's the law. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And it seems as if what Jesus is saying is this is where the, the, the this is where the pebble drops in the water and, and begins moving the rhythm and the circles outward. Wrong. This is where Jesus says you fall on your face and you literally can't figure out what tripped you. This is where not where things begin, but the problem is is that this is the beginning and the end of all things because you don't do this. You don't love God, and you don't love your neighbor as yourself, and you prove that you actually hate God because you disobey his commandments every single day of your miserable existence. And you don't love your neighbor as yourself, but boy, do you love yourself. You want me to love my neighbor what way? The purpose of the law is to show us our sin. Because the measure is your relationship to others, and, and the internal measure of that is, is your own personal health and self-regard and, and self-worth. But it all begins here, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Wrong. If it, gospel. The gospel. God was in Christ reconciling us to himself. The good news, Christ died for our sins. The law is not going to save us, Erwin. You don't know what you're talking about. And I, I, I thought about this for years and years and years, how, how strange human relationships are and, and how sometimes it distorts our relationship to God. See, what Jesus is trying to let us know is that the most important thing for a human being to ever engage in, the most important thing for a human being to encounter, the most important thing for us to experience is this relationship with the God who created us and to live in love. Yeah, but there's this little problem. We are by nature at war with God. You know, we're born with a bazooka in our hands and we keep launching the grenades at God's face. <sighs> to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I thought about it, well, is, is God that needy that he just needs us to love him? And this is why the command is there and God said, there, love me, love me. You know, and, and I think sometimes that's the way it feels like. You know, God needs our worship. God needs our praise. God needs our love. I don't think so. I think God's probably okay without us. I know, it's a hard thing to say. Just suck it up. It's just, I think it's just true. See, I don't think God created us because God was out there going, I'm so lonely. Let me create these little things, these humans, so they can love me. Because being loved by angels isn't enough. Oh, I hope you get beyond the surface here. Let me help you out. He might, I don't know if he'll land on his feet. He hasn't landed on his feet yet. We're... Literally adrift at sea without a rudder, and the wind is blowing us farther from shore. Um, Erwin, listen, God didn't need us because within the Godhead, there is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God was not lonely. Okay? And that relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was pure love. And when God made humanity, 
when he created man, he created us in his image. Unique characteristic to the creatures that God had created. And so we have, well, before the fall, we could reflect and experience that love truly, not by compulsion, but by nature. And now that we're fallen, we don't. Right. I, I think because God is love, he loves creating that which can give love. That's great. Could you back it up with a, a passage? Maybe a verse or two would help here, since your job is to preach the word. I mean, just thought you'd realize that, Second Timothy 4. You've heard of it. You might want to read it. And no love. I think love's natural instinct is to constantly expand because love is an unlimited commodity. Wow, that's so deep. It's unfathomable. Too bad it's just your opinion. You never have too many objects of love. There's always enough love for everyone. All you need is love. Na, 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 na. And with every human being who ever takes a breath, the potential for love's expansion exists. That's a load of garbage. Where'd you get that from? See, what I know is that you and me, we need God's love. We need to experience, to be bathed, consumed, drenched, to bask in God's love. Great. Can you give me an example of it? Give me an example of God's love. I can think of one. Let me see. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that would be anybody, believes in him, trusts in him, will have eternal life. Your soul and my soul needs to experience the power of unlimited, unconditional, pure, unadulterated love that comes from God. You need love from God to be able to love yourself and to love others. I need to love myself? Um, Erwin, that falls into the category of the problem, not the solution. But strangely enough, it's not then that God needs your love. It's that you need not only to receive God's love, but you need to love God. Okay, come on, Erwin. We're in the, we're in the ballpark here. Can you give us a little gospel? Come on, just throw me a crumb here. Gospel crumb, anything. Your soul needs to love God. Sociologists always uh, try. Uh, man. Teasing me with gospel categories, but never giving me the gospel, but only the law. Wow. Try to understand and explain human action. And, and one of the dynamics of, of how we develop as human beings is that we tend to become the, soul, the sum total of all the relationships in our life. And, and we're disproportionately influenced by... What verse is that found in, by the way, Erwin? That we're the sum total of all of our relationships? Yeah, that's what I thought. By the people that we give more influence to. 
So in other words, the, the person you love the most, the person you respect the most, the person you trust the most, the person whose affirmation means the most to you will have the most influence in shaping who you are as a person. That's a fine psychological theory there, uh, as far as psychological theories go. Uh, can you get back on task there, Erwin? Uh, you have a divine duty as a pastor to preach the word. Can you get back to that? So when you receive God's love, it becomes healing. It becomes life-changing. It becomes transformative. And when you receive God's love, you now have experienced what unconditional love is like. And you cannot give something away that you have not known. Can you give me an example of this love thing here from the Bible? Example how God loves us? That you do not have. But when you love God, when God becomes the object of your love, God becomes the primary influencer of your soul. And how does that happen? How do I love God? Considering the fact that by nature I'm at war with God, how do I love God? I mean, serious. You do understand that the Bible says that naturally it's impossible for us to love God. It really does say that. Um, Romans chapter 8, we read, For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that is what we are by nature, is hostile to God, putting it lightly, and does not submit to God's law, God's law being summarized as love God and love your neighbor. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, um, uh, Erwin, uh, you cultural architect, you, um, here you are telling me that I've got to do something that I can't do by nature. Can you bring the cross in at all? You know, Christianity, you know, the word Christianity begins with this, this, the concept of Christ, you know, Christianity, Christ, Christ, Jesus, you heard of him? He both forms and informs you. He informs you and then begins to form you. And so when you begin to love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, God begins to shape everything about you, all that you are, and how you relate to everyone and everything. And how is it I'm supposed to love a God that I'm hostile to by nature? In the world. So when you love God, you become shaped by who God is. Great. I apparently don't love him because I sinned today. Is this good news or is this really, really, really bad news? Oh, because, I mean, Erwin, you make it sound so easy. You know, just, you know, come on. Just love God. You know, those of you who... uh, um, you know, lost your job, lost your house, lost everything you own, you know, just, just have a positive outlook and just, you know, go get a new job and just, you know, should be as easy as cake. In loving God, we receive the forgiveness and the freedom our souls long for, but whoa. So if I love God, then I get the forgiveness. Love is the law, Erwin. 
So I can't get forgiveness from God unless I keep the the law? Well, that's going to keep me out forever. In loving God, we become shaped in his image and likeness. I thought it was through the gospel. Just, you know, little technicality there that the, the scriptures are against you there, Erwin. When we receive his love, we become free. Can you talk about how God loves us? Ministry of reconciliation, died on the cross for our sins, anything like that? When we give him love, we become alive. Uh, actually, no. Um, Christ rise, raises us from the dead. We're de- born in trespasses and sin. Dead. Dead in trespass. Christ raises us again through the gospel. And now, because we're a new creation in Christ, we have a heart of stone that's been replaced with a heart of flesh. We now can love God. You keep skipping the whole gospel part of this, Erwin. And I wonder this morning if that may be the missing component as you're trying to figure out the dynamics of your relationships. This Wednesday, I'm... Uh, I'm uh, heading... no, uh, Erwin, the missing component is called the gospel. That's what's missing. On a kind of a tour... I leave Wednesday morning and I go to Germany, then I go to Denmark, and then I go to Sweden, then I go to England, then I go to Ireland, then I go to England, then I come back home. And it's going to be busy and hard, but fun too. So I thought, hey, I'm going to make like a guy trip and invite a couple of guys who might have some free time. And and I was going to take a couple, and now I have eight. And, and, And several of them don't even live in L.A. And one's coming from Germany. Three from Canada. I don't know what it is about Canada. It's, and, uh, and, and a few here from our community. And we're going to travel together. And, and, and first it was, you know, a couple of people here from here at the Mosaic. And, and, and then I just kind of invited this guy who was really trying to connect to what God is trying to do in his life. And just seemed to need some friends. So I said, hey, why don't you come with us? And he said, okay, I'll come. And, and then he emailed me one day. He said, hey, I got a friend, and, and he had a really bad experience a long time ago in church, and he hasn't really ever gone back, and they've really disconnected, you know, in their spiritual journey. And would you, ha- would you meet with him? And so I had dinner with this guy, and I think he was like 31 years old, and, and uh, walk, it walked away from, you know, any kind of spiritual community a long time ago and, and uh, started a company and sold it for $700 million and, and a really busy guy with wife and kids, really nice. And, and he, he seemed to be really just needing some friends. So I, I just, on a whim, said, hey, in a week, I'm going on a tour to Europe and Scandinavia and Europe. Some guys are going, you want to go? Here's this incredibly busy guy living in two countries, flying back and forth, and he emails me, I'm coming. And, and then he emails me a few days later this week, and he says, hey, I got a friend who really got hurt. <laughs> by the church a long time ago and now he has a construction company and he really needs community and connection could he come and so i i was a little nervous but i emailed back as long as he can laugh and adjust to spontaneous situations and and he said okay and then now he's coming and and you know what occurred to me there's so many people who are really longing for friendship and community and relationship and they are willing to pop on a plane and travel the world just to connect. And 
And it's not that they've never found the church. It's that when they stepped into the church, they got really hurt. Because it wasn't the relationship value that needed to be there. And I wonder today if there's a disconnect in your life between this healthy relationship you need to have with Jesus, the healthy relationship you need to have about who you are, and the relationship you need to have with others. Yeah, duh. It's called sin. And if you feel broke and you have broken relationships, here's a great place to begin this morning. Just to ask Jesus to help you start afresh. To tell him you're scared that maybe you've tried before and it didn't work, but this time you just want to trust him with your life. And try harder. Oh, man. But here's the thing. You can't do it alone. You cannot do this alone. You have to do it with others. So I'm going to invite you today not only to ask Jesus to help you start healing the relationships in your life, but to commit to find a way to get connected to community. And outside, we're going to have tables. What does that mean? Out there, there's a connection table. There's a small groups table. There's a she community table. There are people out there ready and giving of their volunteer time, of their free time to help you step into community. I want you to make a decision this morning to do that. And, and, and by- A decision to step into community. And h- how is that going to ultimately help these people who are heading to hell? By the way, just a little side note. Anybody here know what Twitter is? Yep. You, you know, I, I started Twittering. And, uh, and I've been Twittering like maybe once a day, sometimes a couple times a day. And, and here's what I've been doing. I've just been trying to send out little thoughts to help people along the way in their life. And, and before I knew it, I have like 4,000 people on my Twitter. And, uh, and I never mentioned it to you and you're in my community. And so I thought, oops. And, and so I want to invite you to join me on Twitter. And while I'm in Europe and in Scandinavia and stuff, I'll try to update every day. One, about where we are. But two, I'll just try to think about what is it God saying to me? What are some of the questions that are in my own life? And what are things that are provoking me forward? And- well, I can think of one question that probably God would have for you right now. Although I got to be careful. I don't speak authoritatively for God unless he's spoken. Um, but considering the fact that God, through the Holy Spirit, has inspired Paul to tell the jo- tell pastors that their job is to preach the word. Immediately, my question that for you would be: um, Do you think that God is happy with the fact that you're not preaching the word? Uh, number two: Have you heard of the gospel? That's the the message that we're supposed to preach. By the way, Luke twenty four: uh, Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name which hasn't even come close to making an appearance in this sermon with one minute and 47 seconds to go. And why is it that you're throwing people onto the law and rather than giving them Christ and him crucified for their sins and the reconciliation that they have through what Christ did for them at the cross? Just some basic questions. I'm sure uh, that uh, although, you know, I'm not God or I don't speak for him in that sense that his questions would be probably along these lines because that's what's mysteriously missing from the sermon. And I'll just send those to you guys. And it's a way that we can kind of stay connected. You know, one of the beautiful things about the world we live in, people mock technology all the time, but it is a way for us to be connected even when there's huge geography between us. Because there are ways of closing the space between us, but you have to take the steps to stay connected. You, you, you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to is law talk.
Let me pray. I think. All right, we're done. So there it is. That's uh, an Irwin McManus sermon. And uh, boy, am I disappointed there. Uh, nothing Christian about it at all. In fact, you can take this sermon and you could preach it in a Mormon church. You can preach it in a Muslim mosque. You could preach the sermon in um, in a Jewish synagogue. Think about it. Go back and listen to it. He starts off with a Jesus story. But it all centers on the law. You could preach this sermon in a synagogue. It's not. This was not a Christian sermon. Folks, Christianity is about what Christ has done for you. You don't measure up. You have a broken relationship with God as a result of your trespasses and sins. And the good news is, is that Christ has offered us full and complete pardon through Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross. And that good news radically transforms your life. You can't be the same person when through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the word, you are brought to repentance and to the point where you receive by faith the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. For there is no other name given under heaven or earth by which men can be saved except for through Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. That's the message we've been given to give. And when pastors don't do it, they're not making Christians. They're making legalistic Pharisees who trust in themselves and their own applying of the God's law for their own benefit. But not repentant sinners who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Well, sadly, we're at the end of another broadcast day here at Fighting for the Faith. and want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that your financial support is vital. Not optional, it's actually vital in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, you can partner with us a couple of different ways. Visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on one of our handy-dandy yellow donate buttons there. That's And you can make your online gift Pay uh, pay for your online gift on uh, PayPal there and a secure credit card transaction. Or you can make your gift check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. I wonder if he'll listen to my sermon review when I Twitter about the fact that I reviewed his sermon well, uh, probably not. I, who am I? I'm just a internet radio guy. <sighs> oh, man. want to remind you that you can email me, and I love the emails that I get from you guys. I apologize that I cannot respond to all of them, and they have been really good lately. I want to let you all know that. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll get to more listener email tomorrow. Um, you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. I'm a friendly guy. I will say yes. As long as you don't abuse your friendship privileges. And then if you'd like to receive our secret subversive microblog tweets, you can follow me on Twitter. My name is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God bless you. <laughs>